podcast where not only do we break down one film a fortnight from the IMDb top 250 sometimes, but we also run pod v pods where we play games and quizzes, trivia, we look at drafts and tournaments, all that fun stuff, but today we're doing something a little different. Yet again. Yet again. As usual, I'm joined by my co-host Hendo. How are you going, mate? How, am, how are you enjoying this heat wave? I am so hot, it is ridiculous. We had two, and I'm not sure about today, but the last two days before today have been recorded as the hottest days on average ever in Australia. It is unbearable right now. I got, I got, out, I got out of work today and, I, and I, I felt like I just got immediately burnt. Yeah, it's bad. It's It's awful. I got in the car. It was probably sixty degrees in the car. And you're sitting here in your in your black suit, basically yeah. from work. Yeah. Ugh. Mate, I'm, it's it's fucking hot. I know. <laughs> you you're landing around in a fucking singlet. Oh, singlet, me shorts, no worries. <laughs> Loving it. <laughs> yes, but like you alluded to, we are doing a little something different. It is close to Christmas and. We are very busy men at the moment. We've We're got, ridiculously yeah, busy. We work, have family. I reckon I've got about six different Christmas parties, lunches, gatherings yep. I need to attend. Most of them are at restaurants. It's it's a lot. And yep. on top of on top of work where, you know, turnover virtually doubles. Like I'm yeah. in a definitive resort store Ooh. and it's it's crazy. Like the amount of amount of stuff we went through like today was just the, uh, the trucks did not stop. It was ridiculous. Yeah, we are recording this uh, a little bit later than usual. We're basically putting it out on the line, I guess you could say. So we wanted to get something out anyway because we don't want to miss a week. So we've decided to put out a little bulk episode of our of the other patron preview episodes that we haven't put out from way back in the day. I'm talking about our Wes Anderson series, our Die Hard series, and a couple of other little extra episodes. We thought we'd put out a, a couple of little... Uh, Clips, I guess, from well, these Well, we episodes. do love our clip shows, we, we, don't we? We, we, work, we work them pretty well. We were pretty good at them by now. They're, uh, they're quite good to to do an easier episode from a recording point of view. Absolutely, because we just don't have the time at this very very moment in our in our times, I guess. In our lives. Yes. It is they a, really were yeah. the days of our lives, Hendo. Was that it? Is it over? Is, it, is, it, is this the end of your life? I don't know. Isn't that how they open the, the days of our lives? I don't know. I've never watched it. Is that still going? I mean, if I had to guess, I would say yes. Wow. Well, good on that show. But it's not just going to be these little patron previews, of course. We've got our other little things going on here. We've got, we got our question of the week, which is, what is your favourite non-traditional holiday film? Which is also our top five as usual. We're going to take a look at our recent 2000s film tournament results, which I believe is the final eight, which will move us into the final four. And I've got a brand new little segment I want to show off to Dean. But aside from that... And new listeners, of course. <laughs> And it just comes up with all this fun stuff just for me. Well, I realise now that if I if I if I talk to Dean about it before I do it, he's going like, no, no more. <laughs> <laughs> that that is kind of accurate though. <laughs> but let's not waste any more time, mate. Let's get into it. Give me the update. All right, Hendo. Let's have a look at the IMDb top two fifty list. What are the changes? The changes. Let's look at some inclusions, my friend. Ooh, Marriage Story. Yeah. Uh, entered the list at 108, has nice. since dropped to 138. Ugh. Yeah, so, you know, probably one of those movies that, you know, bows out really quickly. The Irishman. Speaking of which. It's dropped another 24 spots, mate. It's down to a number 169. Mm, not looking good. Joker's dropped down one more spot to 20. Yes. But our Parasite bet, it's moved up two spots. I don't think it's going to get there. No. <laughs> I think it's safe to say I have won this bet. It's sitting at 32 with 
11 days left. It's got to get to 25. Yeah. No chance. So everyone who's listening, even if you don't give the, even if you don't like the film, just go out there and just pump a ten a ten star rating on IMDb, would you? That's called cheating, Hendo. No, it's not. Yes, it Could is. you imagine if that was the case? If I had such an impact on people that I managed to get Parasite up to twenty five, I mean, I would consider that a success. I would consider that pathetic on the uh, part of IMDb that's such a small <laughs> that they allowed for tiny- this to happen. <laughs> You know, the the Henderson family votes have had such <laughs> sway. <laughs> but a couple of other new entries. We have Klaus, which is a new movie from this year. I believe it's on Netflix. Isn't that Claws? No, it's, I think it's Klaus. I thought it was Klaus. Claws. Could be. Either way, it's at number 194 at the moment. And Knives Out has peaked in right at the very bottom at 246. <laughs> Quick, let's do a breakdown. <laughs> I could go up. Who knows? What do you reckon? No. <laughs> go on. I'm not going to make a bet on this. Go on. And that is your update for the top 250 this week. All right, so we're going to get into a couple of these little patron previews here. And, of course, we're going to start off with our very first series we did, the Wes Anderson series, way back in the day. How did we decide to start with Wes Anderson? I wanted to watch the Wes Anderson films. That's kind of an And you, uh, you as you know, second in command, was like, yeah, whatever you want to do. <laughs> not second in command. Just uh, how can I spin this to save some face? You couldn't be bothered. Making a, a different opinion. So you're yeah, like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's what it is. Where you're like, hey, I've got this great idea. I want to do Wes Anderson. I'm like, well, I can't be bothered thinking of something better, <laughs> which in fairness wouldn't be that hard. But uh, yeah, you got your way on that one. Yeah, so we went through his entire filmography, all nine movies. Of course, you've heard one of these already because we it was a top 250 breakdown for the Grand Budapest Hotel. But in terms of the other eight films, we definitely did our little patron breakdowns on those. So I think that was that was one of the, the main reasons we went with Wes Anderson because he had so few films. Yeah, we wanted to get a yeah a director that had a lot of films, but like one maximum one was yeah. in the top two hundred and fifty. Yep. And it's hard to find some of these directors that we really love. Like, let's do this filmography. Wait, there's like twenty films. In fact, <laughs> we couldn't, so we went with Wes Anderson. Very good. <laughs> yeah, so we'll bring you our first four patron previews here on his first four films. Obviously, Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, The Royal Tenenbaums, and The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou. And we'll come back after that. Welcome, patrons, to our review of Bottle Rocket. I really don't want to do this robbery, you know. Man, neither do I. You're breaking his heart. You know that, don't you? What were you thinking? They're going to keep on trying. Got it, ma'am. We know it backwards and we know it forwards because we've done the legwork and we've done the research. Until they get it right. What are you doing here? You're always at lunch now. Not always. Yes, always. All right, Dean, Bottle Rocket, released in 1996, starring Owen and Luke Wilson, directed by Wes Anderson, of course. Wes Anderson. Since we're doing all these movies, it's going to be him. Yes, we are. And what a way to start. With a budget of $7 million, and that's, it made- That's massive. It made 560000 It bombed. <laughs> it completely bombed. <laughs> oh, I love that it bombed. I'm not surprised at all, honestly. Like, Yeah. This film just, it feels like, it doesn't feel like it has $7 million behind it. It definitely doesn't at all. I don't know where the money went. I mean, this movie never played in more than 49 cinemas in the US. Little wonder that it failed to recoup a $7 million budget with so little cinemas it played at. Actually, after the movie bombed at the box office, Owen Wilson, he seriously considered joining the Marines, convinced that he had no acting future ahead of him. I mean, and it's fair enough. It's a credit to Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson in particular that, like- 
they would have taken slack from this. This is oh, a yeah. massive hit. Like, we're, t- we're talking mega, mega dollars here. This is like, not a Ben Affleck and Matt Damon with Goodwill Hunting. This is like the polar opposite. Yeah, like, this is this is not pocket change. No. They are, People are losing millions of dollars because of the film, basically, that these two guys have made. Yeah. And you'd struggle. You'd really, really struggle it's with it. It's crazy that he actually managed to do another one after this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this film scored the worst test screening points in the history of Columbia Pictures at the time. Wow. Yeah. But it was one of Martin Scorsese's top ten favorite films of the nineties. I don't get that. What? That must be that must be a nod to like amateur filmmaking, I don't which know. is what what this film feels like is an amateur film. Well, with sixty one thousand ratings, it has an average of seven point one on IMDb. That's massive. Yeah. That's a massive average. Well, is this a case of like the Christopher Nolan love have all these Wes Anderson diehards gone back? watched it and gone, oh, my God, you can see the genius from the jump. Let's give it a 10 out of 10. It'd be interesting to go see IMDb in 1997 and see what the rating was then. Yeah. Let's go back in time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God, it's worse. (laughs) I mean, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God, it's better. (laughs) Oh, my God, is it a nine? (laughs) Two votes. Luke and Owen Wilson. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's get into the film, Dean. Welcome, patrons, to our review of Rushmore. What's the secret, Max? The secret? I think you just gotta find something you love to do and then do it for the rest of your life. For me, it's going to Rushmore. Sharp little guy. He's one of the worst students we've got. So, Rushmore, released in 1998, starring Jason Schwartzman, Bill Murray, and Olivia Williams, directed by Wes Anderson. Who else? Of course. That's why we're all here. This movie had a budget of $9 million, Dean. I believe it was 10. Uh, 9, 10. What's the difference? It made $17 million in the US. Much better than its predecessor, Bottle Rocket. <laughs> still not great, though, is it? Yeah, he's still getting there. Uh, this screenplay was actually written way before they did Bottle Rocket. Which is odd, because this screenplay feels so much sharper than Bottle Rocket. Oh, yeah. Oh, this, is a, this is a big uptake. Oh, ma- <laughs> massive increase in quality here. It's actually garnered a Golden Globe nomination for Bill Murray for Best Supporting Actor. Yeah, they were originally going to release it in 1999 at the start of the year, but they decided to get it out as quick as possible before the end of the year so they could get some Academy Award consideration. It didn't get nominated. But I'm I'm saying that's what they were going for. Okay. Actually, when Bill Murray first read the script, he thought it was so fantastic that he said he wanted to do it so badly he would do it for free. But the guy was loaded. That's crazy. The guy was loaded. Yeah, I know, but like, it's not that good a script. Jesus. Even even so much that when the studio said, you, like, Wes Anderson wanted to do to do this scene where it involved the helicopter, but the, the studio was like, cost too much money. We're uh, not going to do it. So, Bill Murray just gave him a blank check. Said, do it. Ah, <laughs> uh, to be rich. Yes. So, Jason Schwartzman. I do not know him really from anything other than this. I know he's in a lot of Wes Anderson films. I know him as Gideon Graves from Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Yeah, I never. I never. I watched that once. Wow. Watch it again. No. No. Do you know he's actually Francis Ford Coppola's nephew? Did you know he's Talia Shire's son? Am I meant to know who Talia Shire is? Adrian! Oh, really? Yeah. Godfather as well, of course. Of course. (laughs) Continuing on with Bill Murray, he disliked Jason Swartzman's personality so much during their first meeting, but he did eventually warm up to him while while they worked together. Yeah. I mean, Schwartzman would have been like 17, I think, when he was making this. He does seem like a fairly annoying person. (laughs) Just Just in general. Just going off this character. Yeah. Did you know there was 1,800 teenagers who auditioned for this role of Max Fisher? I did see that. I saw that uh, Schwartzman actually arrived at the audition already wearing a blazer, which was sporting a Rushmore crest, which he had actually made himself. Yeah. 
So that's commitment. It is commitment. Or is that cockiness? Uh, either way, it worked for the character and worked for him. Damn right. And it currently holds an average of 7.7 over 152,000 votes. Not bad at all. Not bad at all. All right, let's get into the movie, Dean. Welcome, patrons, to our review of the Royal Tenenbaums. There were three extraordinary children in the Tenenbaum family. I said sell it, yeah. Chaz Tenenbaum was a financial expert and started buying real estate in his early teens. Margot Tenenbaum was an acclaimed playwright and won a Pulitzer Prize in the ninth grade. Richie Tenenbaum was a champion tennis player ranked second in the world by age 17. They were brilliant. They were famous. They were unlucky enough to be the children of a man named Royal Tenenbaum. So, The Royal Tenenbaums released in 2001, starring Gene Hackman, Angelica Houston, Ben Stiller, Gwyneth Paltrow, Luke Wilson, Owen Wilson, Bill Murray, Danny Glover, and the voice of Alec Baldwin. Quite a cast here. Quite a cast. Jeez. For a uh, third-time director, certainly certainly got a bit more popular after Rushmore, didn't he? He did, he did. Well, with, you know, uh, stars like Bill Murray and the Wilson brothers uh, by his side, he was probably bound to pick up a couple of more along the way here. Hmm. Yeah. So this film was nominated for a Best Screenplay Oscar? Yep, okay. I think it makes sense. Yeah, also written by Owen Wilson and Wes Anderson, obviously. Yep. Gene Hackman actually won Best Actor, Musical or Comedy at the Golden Globes. Okay, yeah, I can see that too. Yeah, I don't mind that. Yeah. I don't mind that. That's good. Yeah, if we're looking at the budget here, it had a $21 million estimate there and ended up grossing just over $52 million. So obviously he's uh, most profitable film so far. Mm. So he seems to be getting there now. Very good. Yeah, Gene Hackman actually has mentioned that he was somewhat hesitant to actually take the part because he felt like it was too reflective of how he actually was in real life with his family. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was only after actually speaking to his family about it when they said, yeah, no, it's fine, we don't mind, that he was actually comfortable in playing this role. Maybe that's why he did so well because he's basically playing himself. Yeah, I I think that honestly has a lot to do with it. Just on Gene Hackman. He actually provided a bit of, or caused a bit of, fair bit of tension on set, particularly uh, with Wes Anderson. Okay, why? What happened? Yeah, apparently Hackman can normally be tough to work with, and according to Wes Anderson, there were moments when, when it got so bad that Bill Murray actually would come in on his days off just to sort of stand by Anderson as a show of solidarity. Why, was Gene just being an asshole? I think so, yeah. Well, just saying like... I think he was just really rude. Because he's still this young director and Gene's this well, it's my veteran. Under- it's my understanding, honestly, that he took the part sort of with an, an agreement that he knows he's coming to the end of his career. He just wanted to have a bit of fun. And it, like, it, it was agreed to, but yeah. Wes Anderson was not having a bar of it, wanted to do it his way, and their you know, strong personalities mm. obviously clashed. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. And this film currently has an average rating of 7.6 over 238,000 reviews. Pretty high. Yeah. It was much more higher. Rushmore's 7.7. Yeah. What was Bottle Rocket? 7.2. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Lowish there. Hmm. Interesting that this has got a lower rating than Rushmore, honestly. Yeah. I mean, you you clearly rate it higher than Rushmore. Yeah, I do. Yeah, Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah, good. Good. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely better than Rushmore. Yeah. Yeah, let's just get that out of the way now. Yeah. Well, it's good. He's on a good trajectory. Yeah. We'll wait and see where that trajectory goes with The Life Aquatic next week, too. Hmm. All right, Dean, let's get into it. Welcome, patrons, to our review of The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou. Supposedly, Cousteau and his cronies invented the idea of putting walkie-talkies into the helmet. 
But we made ours with a special rabbit ear on the top so we could pipe in some music. So, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, released in 2004, starring Bill Murray, Owen Wilson, Angelica Houston, Kate Blanchett, Willem Dafoe, and Jeff Goldblum, directed by your friend and mine, Wes Anderson. Yes, it was. Continuing our Wes Anderson run here. A bit of a, a bigger movie for Wes Anderson, actually. The budget was $50 million, his largest yet. And what did it gross, though? It was a failure yes. at the box office. <laughs> Brought in only $34 million. And this is, what, two out of four of his movies now were flops? Yep, yep. Bottle Rocket and this one. I think Rushmore, Rushmore. just, I think it just made us yeah. money back, maybe. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. And I guess, what can you say? I guess his quirkiness is, is becoming a hindrance to him now, maybe? Especially in a movie like this. This is a very- Niche. Yeah, niche. Incredibly niche. 50 million for this movie is way too much. And straight away, like, I, as you all know, I watch a lot of movies. I had not ever seen this movie. No, I hadn't either. And I tell you now, the title does not do it any favours. Not at all. He might think this is all quirky and what a funny little title. It put me off the movie for, yeah. for years, like until we did this and I had to watch it. It's a stupid title. If you're not it's into- It's too long. If you're not into- It's hard to say Zizu. <laughs> Zizu. <laughs> if you're not into- Zizu. Quirky, quirky films, because you know this is going to be one of those type of films. You look at that title, you're like- Okay, here we go. What's this? Uh, What's this about? And you see that poster. The but, poster's terrible. But do you think that a lot of this budget went to the fees of all these actors he's got in this? Like that is a massive lineup of mm. A-listers. Mm. Like I wouldn't be surprised if this film actually got shot for like twenty and thirty went to the actors and the director. Of course, he probably took forty. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, people. I'm an A-list director now. I think you can sense from the tone here what we think of this film. <laughs> Well, I pers- I'm not overly high on it. No, me neither. It's definitely a big step down from the Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah, absolutely. And it's disappointing because each film's gotten better so far. Now, yeah. there's different levels of better, but Rushmore was better than Bottle Rocket. Royal Tenenbaums was better than Rushmore. And this just- There was only so high he could go before he had to fall. But he actually could have gone higher from the Royal Tenenbaums, in my opinion. Yeah, he could. And, and we'll he does. S- well, well, we'll see if he does later, but- Well, in my opinion right now- he does. You know, that, that opinion might change as we rewatch these films. But according to IMDb, it still gets a 7.3 out of 10 based off 160,000 reviews. That's very high. Yeah. I mean, it, very, very high. Because I could, imagine a lot of people who watch this could potentially give it a, an extremely low score. And the thing with a movie like this, there's probably a lot of people who would watch it and go, oh, that's so original, what a masterpiece, 10 out of 10. But a lot of people, I'm sure it just wouldn't click with and would hit a solid one. So I can to, see I can to, see it going either way. Yeah, to hit 7.6 is actually pretty surprising. All right. With well, that being said, let's get into it, Dean. All right, mate. Let's take a quick break from the patron previews and get to... Answer my question! The question, jerk! Where, in the spirit of Christmas, we've asked you, what is your favourite non-traditional holiday film? And what a terrible question, Hendo. What the hell is a non-traditional holiday film? It could mean a couple of different things, like some of these answers I've seen. It could mean... Uh, basically a film that you would watch around the, the holiday period that isn't really related to holidays at all. Or it really could mean films, like for me, what I've done is say Christmas related films that aren't centered towards like Christmas spirit and Santa and 
holiday cheer and that. It's centered. Yeah, so you yeah. can almost take the Christmas element out of it, and it doesn't drastically change the entire. But movie. it's still you could still qualify it as a Christmas film. It's more like a Christmas adjacent film. Hmm. But let's take a look at some of these responses. First one from this Christmas, give the gift of Jeff and Dan. The Long Kiss Goodnight. Yep, it's Christmas related and brilliant. And Fox says The Nightmare Before Christmas. Have not seen it. Ah, oh, I did when I was a kid. Yeah. In fact, I I did start watching it recently with my kids and it is horrifically bad. Ooh. Oh, it's just ugh, Come on. Claymation, Tim Burton. It is as Tim Burtony as you're ever going to get. It's not even directed by Tim Burton though, isn't it? No, I'm almost certain it's not. Yeah, it's actually directed by Henry Selick, but written by Tim Burton. So do you still say it's as Tim Burtony as it can get? Yes. Henry Selick also directed Coraline. Makes sense. James and the Giant Peach. Have you seen that? No. Let's get get, get back you to this. You think James and the Giant Peach? Man, we had like a whole term in like grade three studying that film. Bravo to you then. It was, it was a good a good year. It was a very good year. Still any good, says The Wild Geese. I never even heard of it. 143 says Heat. I think that'd be like a one that he watches during Christmas for some reason. Maybe. I don't think there's anything Christmassy in that film. Is it is it take does it take place on like Christmas? I don't know. I'm trying to picture anything Christmassy. Is there a Christmas tree in Pacino's house? I mean, he probably throws it down the stairs or something. <laughs> really? Well, he he trashes the TV. No, he takes the TV with him. Man, it's been a while since I've seen that movie. We'll get to that one day. But she's got a great ass. <laughs> And you got your head all the way up it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. The real Doa says the lion in winter. Ari says Rocky. Rocky, really? That's just, I guess that's uh, just one of the guilty films that she likes to watch during. Guilty is a fair call. Well said, Hendo. Anyway, Beer with Buffy podcast says Die Hard, obviously. The 242nd says The Ref. Yeah, as I was scrolling through movies that would qualify for me, I saw a picture of the ref and it's got Kevin Spacey in it. Seems like mid-90s. Oh, nice. 90s Spacey. LJ Human says Rare Exports. No, never heard of it. No. Still Mallow says Gremlins, a film that was, you know, one of the favourites as a kid that I've never since rewatched. Well, I wonder if it's going to end up on your list. See if you have some uh, good positive thoughts. It's called Nostalgia, Hendo. Three Hours Later says The Christmas Chronicles. A new one, but it's a new tradition. See, I would think that is actually a Christmas film. It's got what Kurt gave Russell. It away? What gave it away? <laughs> Maybe Kurt Russell as Santa Claus on the poster? Always the Critic Movie Podcast says Just Friends. I really like Just Friends. No, I've not seen Just Friends. Actually, maybe I'm thinking of Definitely Maybe. I think I am Definitely Maybe thinking of it. Oh, good one. I mean, it was, it was too easy. Drinking and Screaming says Gremlins. Holiday horror at its finest. And who doesn't love Gizmo? Do you mean Baby Yoda? Have you been watching The Mandalorian? Of course. I have not watched a single second. Have you not? No. I mean, it's... I'm a, I'm a bit over it, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. Like, it was... It was it start, it's a very slow-going show. Mm-hmm. And then it sort of start. You sort of start to think, oh, here we go, here we go. And it just plods. It's a plodding show that goes for like 20 minutes, some of these episodes. It's very short. Maybe I'm exaggerating. Could be 25, but it's it's okay. Like, I norm- I'll be honest, normally I put it on at night. And I do not last the 25 minutes. That's not saying much, though. Yeah, but it's 25 minutes, Hendo. You fall asleep in, like, seconds. It's Star Wars. And it's, yeah, a lot of issues, that show. Cinematic Adventure says The Great Escape. I watch it every year. There's a film I want to rewatch. So I would have watched that when I was, like, 11, maybe? Maybe even 10. I think I saw it when I was, like, 17, maybe. How is it? From memory, it's good. Yeah. Raymond LaBarbera says, We're No Angels from 1955 with Humphrey Bogart, Aldo Ray, and Peter Ustinov. Christmas comedy on Devil's Island. 
Righto. Are we meant to know what Devil's Island is? No. Are we? Ian Willis says, big business. Laurel and Hardy selling Christmas trees in summer. In fairness, uh, that is when we sell Christmas trees here. So Yeah, that doesn't mean is anything that to, to us. that to be a joke? <laughs> you think it's funny? <laughs> we watch the thing, says, eight crazy nights. I know, I'm weird. I haven't seen it. Neither have I. Looks terrible. Yeah, it's don't, Adam don't, Sandler. Don't animate Adam Sandler. Ryan Alterry, Black Christmas. The 74 version. Of course, because there's there's quite a number of Black Christmas movies. Yes, even just one that came out like the other day. Is there really? Legit. Now that's weird. <laughs> Why is that weird? Anyway, Rob Manafield says Bad Santa. Tasteless Podcast says The Long Kiss Goodnight. And our last one on Twitter from the Cinema Guys, Gremlins. All right, let's go over and look at our Facebook page. That is, of course, uh, facebook.com slash the movie journey. Very good. We have from Chris Wooldridge. Is Die Hard too traditional? It is, isn't it? No, actually, no, it's not. Actually, Fellowship of the Ring. Watch it most Christmas days. There you Ooh, go. Making the Christmas day cut. That's not easy. Chris, I wonder if you have it in you to do the entire trilogy extended version on Christmas Day. That's kind of antisocial, no? Isn't it to watch Lord of the Rings anyway? A three to four hour film? I mean, I feel like you could have that on. Do you th- do you saying that Lord of the Rings is a background film? On Christmas Day, it would. Any movie you put on <laughs> on Christmas Day is a background film. I'm sorry. No one is sitting around, shh, 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 don't talk. Hey, movie's on. What are you doing? No one is like that. I would. You are. <laughs> yes. Sam Hurley from the Movie Reviews and 20Q says, I usually remind myself that I haven't seen Pulp Fiction that year and watch it again at some point between Christmas and New Year. Righto. I mean, you can't go wrong with watching Pulp Fiction at any any point. Glenn Chafee says, the popular pick, Gremlins. And Josephine Olnett says, Disney's Cinderella from 1950. All right. Over on at our Patreon page. Again, much thanks to our beautiful patrons. Lovely, lovely, lovely patrons. And speaking of which, we have one from Dan Brennick. Oh, I take that back. He's said Rocky Four. Christmas? Is there Christmas in that, Ender? The, the final fight is set on Christmas Day. He also says, no harumphing, Dan. What is harumphing? I don't know, Dan. You've you got to explain yourself here, like, mate. Hmm. Is that a harumph? Like, hmm. I don't know. I, I In my head, it's a hmm. You should have gone harumph. It still doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Is this an American thing, Dan? I just like he's thinking of me. (laughs) (laughs) No mention of me. Chris Beardsall says, Christmas movies are meant to be family friendly, but I love me some Christmas horror around the holidays. I usually watch Black Christmas or Silent Night, Deadly Night each year. Okay. Really tapping into the psyche of Mr. Chris Beardsall there. Dangerous place. Thank you very much, everyone, for your responses. But, Dean, let's get to our top five non-traditional holiday films. Let's do it. I might kick this one off for something different. For a change. Let's go with uh, a movie that contains one of my favourite performances of All I Want for Christmas Is You, and that is Mean Girls. Yep. I mean, it barely qualifies, but... There's, there's, a, there's hey. a bit of Christmas in there. There's a Christmas concert. That's right. Yep, very good. Well, my number five is Bad Santa. How's that Christmas adjacent? It has Santa in the title. There's no Christmas spirit about it. He's a drunk, alcoholic, same thing, guy who, you know. It's not the same thing. A you drunk. can be a sober, alcoholic, Hendo. All right, move on. Have what you no you? sensitivity? What's your number four? I feel like you're not really considering the plot. I really so. feel like you don't have a list here. Iron Man 3. Let's oh get up my the Marvel. God. The Marvel Did you just do this it. like five minutes ago? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Jesus. Not every list has to have an MCU film on it. Just wait until we get to Infinity War. <laughs> my number four is In Bruges. Yeah, very overrated, that film. Uh, number three for me is Lethal Weapon. Yep, very good. Very good. There's also my number three. Nice. Yeah. I wonder if we have the same two and one. No, we don't. My number two is 
Batman Returns. No. It is. No, that's not my number two. Didn't say it was. You were asking if we had the same two. And you answered me already. Why are you revisiting this, Hendo? Because I don't want to talk about Batman Returns. How good is Batman Returns? Like Christopher Walken. Not as good as my number two, which is Trading Places. I don't know why you like that so much. And our collective number one. Of course. <laughs> Got to be diehard. I mean, surely. Is this, this is our most number one of number ones on every top five we do. It's got to be. Of course it's diehard. Of course. And because we've pushed our Prisoners episode back one week, our question of the week is still, what is your favourite breakout director of the decade? So we've still got that ready to go. We'll get to that next week. All right, Dean, let's get back into our Wes Anderson patron preview series. We've got the next four films of his. That is The Darjeeling Limited, Fantastic Mr. Fox, Moonrise Kingdom, and Isle of Dogs. Welcome, patrons, to our review of The Darjeeling Limited. Welcome. Nice to have everyone on board again on this fine day. I want us to be completely open and say yes to everything, even if it's shocking and painful. Do you have any questions? I do. Okay, go ahead. What happened to your face? So, The Darjeeling Limited released in 2007, starring Owen Wilson, Adrian Brody, and Jason Schwartzman, directed by, who else? Wes Anderson. Wesley Anderson himself. Yes, of once course, again. we also have Bill Murray and Angelica Houston. And a very, very brief cameo from Natalie Portman. Hmm. <laughs> Too creepy? It sounded a little creepy. <laughs> Sorry, I do, I do really enjoy Natalie Portman. That's another way of saying it, a creepy way of saying it. I do really like Natalie Portman. There you go. So, this had a budget of $17.5 million. Okay. See, that is a more respectable budget. It grossed- He does not need a $50 million budget. No. But still, this only grossed $12 million in America. Yeah. But it did get a $35 million gross worldwide. So, in the end- he made did make money. Some, it made some money. Doubled his investment. Exactly. Or, well, not his investment. No. Someone's investment. Uh, so, in order to achieve the constant limp that Owen Wilson had while mm. he was filming, he put a lime in his shoe. That's how he did that limp for the whole film. A lime. Yeah, a full lime in the a bottom of his shoe. A full lime? Yeah. He's not going to put a half lime? Why not? What? You don't think that would cause a limp, a half lime? It would cause a very squishy foot. Yeah, how uncomfortable would that be? <laughs> I want to see you put a half lime in your shoe and not limp. (laughs) (laughs) So, the train scenes that were filmed- The train scenes. Yeah. It's like half the movie. Yeah. They were actually filmed inside a moving train that was traveling from two different towns in India through the tar desert. So, the stipulations were for this that nothing could be fixed to the ceiling and the filming equipment couldn't be more than a meter out of the windows. Wow. Yeah. And overall, this film has an average rating of 7.2 over 159,000 ratings. So, it's dropped. So it has dropped Is a this his lowest rated film so far? I think it's matched to Bottle Rocket. Oh, no. It's actually above Bottle Rocket. Bottle Rocket has a 7.1. Okay. Well, fair enough. That makes sense because this is a better film than Bottle Rocket. Yes, it is. Let's get that out of the way early. Yeah. Welcome, patrons, to our review of Fantastic Mr. Fox. only security is if old hunting beagles laced some blueberries with sleeping powder. Beagles love blueberries. A titanium card. What's this thing you do, the whistle with the clicking sound? That's my trademark. We're different. We all are. Him especially. But there's something kind of fantastic about that, isn't there? So, Fantastic Mr. Fox, released in 2009, featuring the voices of George Clooney, Meryl Streep, 
Jason Schwartzman and Bill Murray, as well as a couple of other Wes Anderson regulars, including Michael Gambon, Willem Dafoe, Owen Wilson, and even Wes Anderson himself. Yes, I did say that. Good to get uh, Wes Anderson behind the mic. Speaking of Wes Anderson, this was directed by... Wes Anderson. Some guy, you probably heard of him, Wes Anderson. Wow, speaking of Wes Anderson, yep. this was directed by Wes Anderson. They know who it's directed by. That's right. All right, so this is Wes Anderson's first feature-length film of stop motion. Yeah, it actually was shot in a frame rate of 12 frames per second rather than 24, so that the viewers would notice that it was actually stop motion. Yeah, because that would cause it to be very um, jolty. Yes, well, not, not very jolty, but more jolty than used to. Yeah, so it's very deliberate that it's like that. Yeah. Wes Anderson actually wanted to use real animal hair for the puppets, even though it meant that the hair would appear to ripple unnaturally in the film due to the puppeteers moving the, the puppets around all the time. So, in the end, the rippling of the fur in the movie was intentional as well. Yeah, I also read that 67 foxes were killed to make this film. That, all right, that's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, why? If you're going to use real fur, like I mean, aren't we anti-fur at this stage? You know, we're all the the Peter people. Uh, well, this was nearly ten years ago. I don't think they were around by that point. Ten years ago, people were anti-fur. Wasn't that long ago? Yeah, that's wearing fur. This is making movies. Ah, this is just using it for other people's enjoyment. That's right. Very good. So, Wes Anderson actually had his actors record their dialogue in different settings, not a studio as would be the norm. They actually went out to locations, you know, outside, in attics, underground for some of them. Did you notice that in the film? No. I did actually notice it. Some of the scenes did feel like it was echoey. And I was like- Trust oh. you to notice that. <laughs> well, I do edit a lot of podcasts. I do know when when I hear an echoey sound. <laughs> so, altogether, 535 puppets were made for this film. Mr. Fox actually had 17 different styles alone, and each of Mr. Fox's style had to be done six different sizes. Yeah, so Mr. Fox actually had over 100 puppets alone. I know, that's crazy. It took seven months to perfect the Mr. Fox puppet as well, the first one. Mm. Did you notice that the Mr. Fox suits were uh, were modelled after Wes Anderson himself? How would I notice that? You think I have you not sit seen around? Any, have you not seen any like still shots of Wes Anderson or anything like that? Like some makings of? You see him in those suits all the time. No, I did not notice that he was wearing suits that Wes Anderson may be prone to wear. Well, what do you, we're into the six Wes Anderson film here, Dean. Why haven't you picked up on this? I'm not studying know who Wes, Wes Anderson. Anderson. Like? I'm stu- yeah, he's, do you know what he, he looks like? He looks like Stephen Wilson from Porcupine Tree. <laughs> um, but he does, I swear to God. But no, a lot of the shots I see of Wes Anderson are his head. Okay, that's it. I don't well, see act- his fashion sense. Well, actually, I imagine it's quite quirky. They though. actually got some of the fabric. For the suits that he used. From his suits? Yeah. Some of the fabric from the tailor. They got some of that fabric and used it for the actual Mr. Fox suits. Far out, this guy. (laughs) This movie is composed of almost 56,000 shots. Yeah, that, that's bonkers. That is bonkers. I was going to say how impressive that is of Wes Anderson to be doing all this, but I actually read that he directed most of this film from his apartment in Paris. He would get daily emails almost from his director of photography sort of saying what's going on and they'd send photos and he'd send emails back instructing on how he wants the shot set up. Well, what do you think of that as a director to spend a lot of the time not even on set, especially with something like stop motion, like a lot of these shots take so long to set up. To have him not even present, I don't know, I find that kind of lazy filmmaking, no? It's kind of quirky filmmaking. Maybe he's got his own style, his own thing. Well, we know he has his own style and his own thing. I'm just saying, he could have his own style and own own thing if he actually turned up to work. He's doing his own work from a distance. 
What does he have to be there to watch some movie? At a, at why? A have you seen this film? Okay, that's why he has to be here. He doesn't need to be there to watch them move at a millimetre and take a picture and then move it again another millimetre. He's got he's doing storyboarding, he's editing, he's getting everything else sorted. So this movie had a budget of $40 million roughly and only got a worldwide gross of $46 million. But it does have an average rating of 7.8 over 196,000 ratings. So although it is widely well received, it didn't do well enough to get the production cost back up. So as a result, no other Roald Dahl adaptation was made until the BFG a couple of years ago and that also did fail to break even. Hmm. Speaking of Roald Dahl and the source material, it was actually one of the first books Wes Anderson ever owned. His mother bought it for him apparently when he was about seven years old yeah. and he's had it ever since. So why don't we get into it, Dean? Welcome patrons to our review of Moonrise Kingdom. Dear Suji, here's my plan. Dear Sam, my answer is yes. Dear Suji, one. Dear Sam, where? Dear Suji, Walk 400 yards due north from your house to the dirt path which has not got any name on it. Turn right and follow to the end. I will meet you in the meadow. Who's missing? Shukuski, you in there? Jiminy Cricket, he flew the coop. So, Moonrise Kingdom released in 2012, starring Bruce Willis, Edward Norton, Bill Murray, Francis McDormand, Tilda Swinton, and introducing Jared Gilman and Cara Haywood. Also, of course, starring Jason Schwartzman. For like a minute. Uh, starring? There's a lot of starring. Bob Balaban? Who? The guy from Seinfeld. Oh, is that his name? Yeah. I just I just wrote him down as Seinfeld guy. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Directed by Wes Anderson. We're getting there, folks. After this, we've got two to go. Grand Budapest Hotel and Isle of Dogs. This is correct. So this film got nominated for Best Original Screenplay at the Academy Awards. Yep. It's uh, quite an achievement for good old Wes Anderson there. Is it? Is it his first nomination? I think uh, one of... Did we mention one a little while ago? Yep, it was the Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah, Royal Tenenbaums, he got a nomination. So, yeah, I can, I can see why. This film is... I enjoyed this film, off the bat. I'll say it now. Yeah, I agree. And considering the first time I attempted to watch it, I turned it off about 10 minutes in. Really? I was very surprised. Were you well aware of the Wes Anderson, like, shtick? At the I, think I, was, I think I was more in the, man, I love Ed Norton. Let's watch this Ed Norton film. I was like, what the fuck is wrong with Ed Norton in this film? <laughs> Pass. <laughs> but no, once you, once you sort of go into it knowing that you're getting a Wes Anderson film, this one is actually one of the better ones, I would say. Yeah, I agree. Good. So this is his seventh film. And the sixth collaboration with Bill Murray. <laughs> in six in a row. Damn. Does he break it? I think he has a small bit in the Grand Budapest Hotel, from memory. He definitely has a, a voice in Isle of Dogs. Okay. I mean, this has to be one of the biggest collaboration partnerships in mainstream history. Oh, I think so. Like, like we're talking about it's, it's potentially like- eight films in a row of director-actor same working together. Yeah, and I don't think it's one that people talk about a lot, really. You you think of director-actors, you think Scorsese, Scorsese De Niro, De Niro Scorsese, Scorsese DiCaprio, Di- Di- <laughs> Scorsese Pesci, <laughs> Tarantino and Samuel L. Jackson. Yep. Spielberg, Tom Hanks. Yep, of course. But um, yeah, this one probably slips under the weeds there. It's, and, it's probably, and it's probably the biggest. Yeah, I, think, I mean, I think it could be. So we've been talking about budget for these films, and we've had the- you know, the small 7 million bottle rocket, mm, which yep. is the extremely ridiculous 50 million for uh, Steve Zizou. Yep. This one was done for $16 million, his smallest one since bottle rocket. Yeah, and I think this is a very, very wise choice. Oh, I think yeah. studios have realized, hang on a sec, man. I know you've got these weird visions and a lot of ambition, 
but you just don't bring in the crowds. And when they're not making a lot of money, they've got to rein it back. Like, well, it's this is a money-making business at the end of the day. But yeah, and obviously Wes Anderson is very, very much indie in, in that sort of filmmaking that he does. So much so that this film only opened in four theatres. Really? Two, yep. Two in New York, two in Los Angeles. But it earned $167,000 per screen, which was an all-time record at the time for the highest per theatre box office average for a non-animated film. That's a strangely specific record. That's still a lot, though. 167000 per cinema of the four. It's good. And overall, it made $45 million in America and grossed worldwide $68 million. Well done, sir. His highest grossing film to that point. Is it really? Yes. Well, consider it. His other ones were big flops. Yeah, okay. Obviously, okay. Steve Zizou, $50 million, didn't make nowhere near that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so it's yeah, good. very good with Anderson. This was actually the last Wes Anderson film I needed to see. I'd seen Grand Budapest and Isle of Dogs before. This is the first time I'd seen Moonrise Kingdom. Oh, okay. Yeah, so my Wes Anderson Your thoughts are fresh. Yes, they are. And my whole filmography is complete now for Wes Anderson. Fair enough. Yeah. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? We'll find out in the next two movies as well. So Wes Anderson has gone on record to say that this film is basically a connection of when he fell in love for the first time. He actually came out and said... Well, what I wanted to do was recreate that feeling of that memory. The movie is kind of like a fantasy that I think I would have had at that age. When you're 11 or 12 years old, you can get so swept up in a book that you start to believe that the fantasy is reality. I think when you have a giant crush when you're in fifth grade, it becomes your whole world. It's like being underwater. Everything is different. Okay, let me stop you there. Yeah. Probably because you stopped yourself already. Um, Makes sense. So, is he saying that his love is... A love of a book he's reading, or is he talking about an actual, like, female love? I think it could be maybe both, from the way he said that there. So, he's defining his first love as when he was 10 or 11. Is that what he said? Yep. It's pretty early. Well, that's that's what he's, maybe that's what he's saying, like, that feeling of a fantasy of being in love. That's what okay. his interpretation of what love is for a child. I guess you can see that, like, it's about these two young kids who just run off together and spend their time alone in the woods, on the beach. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you can see you can see that. Yeah, for sure. We actually spoke about Wes Anderson and Bill Murray before. This is actually the first movie without any involvement with Owen Wilson. He was not part of this film at all. Really? Yeah. Well, well, well. Yeah. <laughs> you see the effect it has. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Wes Anderson, Mr. Big yeah, I wonder Shot. why. I don't know. Uh, wait, uh, I mean, it's not like Owen Wilson's ever too busy to work with Wes Anderson. That's weird. That is weird. Like, these are like... School friends who have yeah. grown up together in the industry, writing and acting. And there's nothing There's nothing about a fallout or anything, because I'm pretty sure they come back- well, Is he in Grand Budapest? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think he yeah. is. That's, that's odd. And this film has an average of 7.8 over 281,000 ratings on IMDb. It's pretty high for a Wes Anderson film. For any film. It is pretty high. 7.8. Yeah. When, you get, when you get close to those eights, it's generally well-received as a good, very good movie. Yeah. Okay, let's get into it, Dean. Okay. Welcome, patrons, to our review of Isle of Dogs. The Japanese archipelago, 20 years in the future. Canine saturation has reached epidemic proportions. An outbreak of dog flu rips through the city of Megasaki. Mayor Kobayashi issues emergency orders, calling for a hasty quarantine. Trash Island becomes an exiled colony. The Isle of Dogs. I don't think I can stomach any more of this garbage. Exactly. Same here. Words out of my mouth. So, Isle of Dogs, released in 2018, starring the voices of 
Brian Cranston, Koyu Rankin, Edward Norton, Bob Balaban, Jeff Goldblum, Bill Murray, Greta Gerwig, Francis McDormand, Scarlett Johansson, Harvey Keitel, F. Murray Abraham. Just too many. There's too many. Who is Koyu Rankin? Does the voice of Atari. How can oh, we not mention of him? Of course, of course. Oh, we got to, of course, mention Kunichi Numara, who did Maya Kobayashi. Yes, we do. He was fantastic. He was. Kobayashi. Directed by... Wes Anderson. His ninth film. And last. So far. Well, yes, so far his last. I'm sure he will make another one. This was his eighth collaboration with Bill Murray. Yes, it was. This was also the second film that did not have any involvement with Owen Wilson. After Moonrise Kingdom. Correct. And the first Wes Anderson film since Steve Zizou to not feature Jason Schwartzman. Nice. <laughs> That's Refreshing. a bonus. One star up already. <laughs> So, obviously, this film was a stop-motion animation, had a team of 670 people, and they ended up doing 130,000 still photographs on this one. I mean, that means nothing to me. Is that a lot? I imagine it is. It's probably just the norm for stop-motion animation. No, nah, you look at these ones. There's a lot of detail in these films. I imagine this is a bit more than the norm. Mm. So, from where we looked, we couldn't see a budget for this film, but in the end, it did gross $32 million in America, and grossed $64 million worldwide. Yeah, so regardless of the budget, this is obviously a successful film for him. Absolutely. It did open at the 68th Berlin International Film Festival, and Wes Anderson was awarded the Silver Bear for Best Director. In Berlin? Again. Didn't he just do this? Yes. <laughs> oh. I think Man. he's got some ties there. These Germans must hate him. <laughs> Stop taking our awards. <laughs> so not really much trivia here, just that it has an average rating of 8.0 over 79,000 ratings so far. On IMDb. It's pretty high. It's very high. 8.0. All right, Dean, let's jump into it. Let's do it. All right, that was our Wes Anderson series, our very first patron series we did. It was a lot of fun, despite, you know, the the varying... I mean, I think as a whole, I'm solidly okay with Wes Anderson. He got better over time. He definitely did. Yeah. But let's take a break from the patron previews and get to... There's this tournament. Let the tournament find out the results of the final eight of our best 2000s film tournament. All right, Dean, the number one seed, The Dark Knight, takes out Gladiator, the number wasn't eight it, seed. Wasn't even close. 83% to 17. Yeah, it's crazy. I prefer Gladiator. Mm, they are very, very, very close yeah, to me. Yeah, they're, they're right around that same mark for me on my top movies of all time. Uh, next one, we have the number four seed, Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, knocking out Amelie. No surprises there. 78.3% to 21.7. Don't know why I put percentage. Sorry. Points. I'm going to do that again. Can you, you can't round up or down quick, can you? You just got to read what it says. All right. The next match. It's another Lord of the Rings film. Number two. And by two, I mean seed. Return of the, <laughs> Return of the King against another Batman film, Batman Begins. And Return of the King just kind of wins. I thought it would have been bigger. Uh, I mean, I don't think it's a just win. It's just, it's not a blowout like 57-43, I thought it was going to be much bigger than that. Hmm. But the last one, what do we got? We got Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, up against Memento. And what do you know? Lord of the Rings, again, yep. 66% takes it out. So we have a final four here of the Lord of the Rings trilogy and The Dark Knight. So kudos to IMDb though. Top four, seeded. Films got through to the final four. Yep, they know their movies, don't they? No, but let's take a look at those final four matches, Dean. We've got the number one seed, The Dark Knight, against the number four seed, Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Well, that won't be much of a competition, will it? I, I don't know. Like, who what? knows? Who knows? Come on, Dark Knight. If Dark Knight is going to embarrass Gladiator like that, it's going to destroy Two I mean, towers. I hope it does. If it was up against one of the others, which it will be, you'd assume, in the final, I'm, I wouldn't be as sure, but... 
Obviously, that does leave the other matchup being Return of the King up against Fellowship of the Ring, which I think is actually going to be a really close match. Well, mini spoiler alert, you and I have different picks for this one. Yes, we do. So, this will be this will be an interesting uh, battle to look at. Speaking of film tournaments and picks that we've got to sort out here, we just finished our Alfred Hitchcock tournament over on Twitter. And unsurprisingly, it was, you know, number one seed against the number two seed. <laughs> with the three and the four seed in the final four after like 56 movies finally got eliminated we had of course psycho against rear window and psycho took it down in the end of course now looking at our choices throughout this you did end up winning by one point in this nice so well done to you sir and you get to choose a movie for me to watch all right hendo it's time i'm gonna finally give you lantana yeah i was waiting for it i must say i actually spoke to uh yeah the actress who's in that film today so that was a good moment for me this is what sparked this conversation this was off the mic where you mentioned oh you know i've got such and such coming in i'm like who's that she's like and you're like oh she's from lantana i'm like yeah i've never seen that you're like one of the biggest what (laughs) i've ever heard in my life well it's one of the you know all-time great australian films it's it's such a great cast it's such a great drama i was just surprised you never watched it well that won't be for very much longer will it mate no, I think you'll genuinely really enjoy it. Well, I hope I do. All right, mate, let's get back to the patron previews and another film series. Well, not a, not another film series. The first film series we did over there after we finished off our Wes Anderson series was the Die Hard series. We did put it out to the patrons to choose which of the film series they wanted to hear our, hear our opinions on based off some of the films we'd already broken down on the podcast, and they did choose Die Hard. So here's our little previews of Die Hard 2, Die Harder, Die Hard with a Vengeance, Live Free or Die Hard, and... A good day to die hard. Welcome, patrons, to our review of Die Hard 2. Die Harder, apparently. It used to be, I'm pretty sure. You said last week, uh, our review of Die Hard 2, Die Harder is coming up. I legitimately thought this movie was called Die Hard 2, Die Harder. I'm pretty sure it was advertised as Die Harder. No, that is the movie tagline. I've looked at many posters. Mm. It's huge. Like, I can understand why you'd think that. It is bigger than the word Die Hard 2, is Die Harder. It's not called Die Harder, okay? I know, that's why I went to Die Hard 2. Just too. calm down. All right. It's they say lightning doesn't strike twice. I spent Christmas last year. They were wrong. McLean, is this what you were expecting? Nah, this is just the beginning. Bruce Willis, Die Hard 2, Die Harder. Well, this is kind of a special occasion because What's that? it is about exactly one year since we started the podcast where to, we did Die Hard. To the day? To the week. I think at this point I was thoroughly editing our Die Hard podcast. Can you just share with our listeners how long you think, from memory, you spent editing our very first episode? It took me a grand total of five Days. Like, after work, I'd go home and I'd spend a couple of hours a night. So, I'd probably say it took me about 10 hours. That's crazy. Yes. How long was that first podcast? An hour? Hour 15. And it took you 10 hours to edit it. Hey, I was new. I was raw. I knew the very basics. I bet you loved every single minute of it as well. I think I loved every single minute of the first night. But the fifth night, I'm like, I don't want to be doing this anymore. (laughs) But soldiered through. And here we are, a year later, with our valued, valued patrons talking about Die Hard 2. And what a joy this movie could have been. Could it have been? Yes, it could have been. How could it have been? How do you think that it could have gone Uh, after coming off of Die Hard? Instead of making Die Hard 2 Die Harder, they make Die Hard with a Vengeance, the second Die Hard movie. (laughs) Okay? 
Well, when you get director Rennie Harlan in to make this one, who spewed out such gems as Cliffhanger and Deep Blue Sea after this. I don't think I ever saw Cliffhanger. Really? Yeah. It's okay. Maybe bits. Like, it's probably it probably just gets a three from me. That's better than okay, isn't it? Uh, like, it's- I don't know. I'd probably have to watch it again. If I reckon- I reckon if I watched it again, I don't think I'd give it a three now. Yeah. John Lithgow's the villain. I mean, he's always good. Yeah, he's not bad in it. Especially in, uh- Harry and the Hendersons. I was going to say Dexter. No, not even close. Much better in Harry and the Hendersons. That is a hidden gem, that film. Anyway, this film stars Bruce Willis, Bonnie Bedelia, William Sadler, John Amos, and Dennis Franz. Do you know half of those names? No, I do not. I know two of them. I figured that was the case. (laughs) Well, we'll find out who those people are later on. So, we did talk about Rennie Harlan directing this. John McTiernan actually had planned to direct this film, but he ended up not doing it because he was committed to directing The Hunt for Red October. Have you seen The Hunt for Red October? No. No, I haven't either. I hear it's good. It's about submarines. I've got this thing with submarine movies. They're all terrible. We'll see. Just because you instantly think of Dust Boot when you hear submarine. I cannot think of a good submarine movie. Down Periscope. Never heard of it. That's shit. Exactly. It's well, how many submarine films are there, really? Battleship? Is that a submarine film no, or is that a battleship, battleship movie? <laughs> <laughs> just trying to think. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe hey, it is just Das Boot. Could be. Anyway, this had a budget of $70 million. What? Yep. Estimated, of course. $70 million. Yeah. That is enormous. It did end up grossing $117 million in America, became the eighth highest film of the year. And grossed $240 million worldwide and was the seventh highest for the year. Obviously, coming off the- Success. The success of the first Die Hard film, I imagine everyone was clawing at the bit to see this one. And boy, I reckon they would have been disappointed. (laughs) I mean, would they though? Well, what do you think a 7.1 average over 300,000 ratings would be? I think that's pretty high. I think that's well received. I think it's fine. A A low seven is okay. For this movie, that's very high. All right, well, why don't we get into it? Let's discuss it, and then we'll get our final thoughts at the end, rather than talk about it now. Okay. Welcome, patrons, to our review of Die Hard with a Vengeance. Who is this? Call me Simon. What do you want? I want to play a game with Lieutenant McLean. What kind of game? Simon Says. So, Die Hard with a Vengeance, released in 1995, starring Bruce Willis, Samuel L. Jackson, and Jeremy Irons, directed again by John McTiernan. He's back. I did not even realise that. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. Oh, they ditch Shows Highland. how much research I've done on this one. <laughs> nah, he's come back for this one here. He actually declined to direct Batman Forever to direct this instead. Could you imagine Batman Forever if John McTiernan had taken over instead of Joel Schumacher? Can you imagine the universe that could have happened? I mean, I assume you're thinking it'd be better, but how can you better something (laughs) as great as Batman Forever? Batman and Robin? (laughs) (laughs) So this had a budget of roughly $90 million. Yep, that's high. Yep, it grossed $100 million in America. Nice. It was the 10th for the year. Yep. But its worldwide gross topped $366 million and was the second highest for the year. Do you remember what the first one was? Independence Day? No, we've done this breakdown already, Dean. Toy Story. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Toy Story. Well, yeah, fair enough. Tough to beat that one. So, do you know who John McTiernan's first choice was for Simon Gruber? No, who was it? It's actually Sean Connery. Oh, yes. I yeah. did see that. 
turned down the role saying he didn't Thank want to play God. such a diabolical villain. I mean, yeah, it would not have fitted him at all. No, not at all. So John McTiernan actually called this plot frail and outrageous and said he hoped that people just enjoyed it for its ridiculousness. Frail and outrageous. Yeah. Didn't really take it too seriously, this this plot. Okay. I think towards the end it gets a bit off the rails. Yeah. But I really- I think this whole Simon Says element to it is really good. Well, I'm pretty sure that this wasn't originally intended to be a diehard film. There was, this story was actually made for just a standalone action film. Wasn't it going to be a Lethal Weapon sequel? It could have been at one point. I heard it was just going to be called Simon Says, and that whole first half of this Simon Says and taking this, this yeah. guy around was supposed to be this story in itself, but yep. they just threw it into this first part of this diehard movie. Yep. Now, as I've been doing research on all these other diehard films, there's- all these other translations for different uh, countries of the, the phrase Die Hard. Yeah. Did you, did you know what the Russian one was? For oh, the, what was it? It was a hard nut to crack. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. And this movie has an average rating of 7.6 over 332,000 ratings. So, that being said, let's get into it. Good. Welcome, patrons, to our review of Die Hard 4.0. Otherwise known as Live Free or Die Hard. I'm doing America a favor. Is the country willing to pay for it? FAA just issued a critical alert. The entire network went down. Transportation system's crashing and they just hit the entire financial sector. You have no idea who you're dealing with. I'll take it from here. So, Die Hard 4.0, Live Free or Die Hard, whichever one you want to say, is released in 2007, starring Bruce Willis, Timothy Oliphant, Justin Long, Maggie Q, and Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Who I did not realise was in this film. Also, didn't realise Timothy Oliphant was in it. You've seen this before, haven't you? Like, uh, I have. I remember nothing. Like, I don't even remember what I thought of it. Really? Yeah. That long ago. I mean, it's not a, a super old movie. Like, I know it's- well, 11 years old now, so yeah, I guess it would have been a while ago. Well, this was directed by Len Wiseman. Les Wiseman. All right, I'll take your word for it there. He also He's, he's directed he the, four uh, movies. The Underworld movies, was that Yeah, right? he's yeah. married to Kate Beckinsale. Ah, okay. Good on you, mate. Good on him indeed. Yes. So, this film had a budget of $110 million, and it ended up grossing $134 million in America, was the 17th highest for the year, and got a worldwide gross of $383 million, which was 11th for the year. Pretty successful. Yeah. No wonder they made a fifth one. Yeah. I don't blame them. So, originally, the story was supposed to involve McLean's son, Jack. Uh, he was supposed to be the computer hacker that John had to take to the FBI. Yeah, and I saw that uh, Justin Timberlake was in talks for the role. Oh, it, it, Justin Timberlake around the 2007, yeah, he would have been- Alpha Dog, social networking. Yeah. Not a social networking yet. That Black was, Snake moaning. That's probably better, yeah. Yeah. Fresh out of his, uh, his singing. He was moving into the acting part there. So, yeah, I see why they would have considered him. I actually saw that Scott Speedman was Les Wise- Are you sure it's Les? That's straight off the trivia. It says Len. Have a look. I don't know why you need to doubt me, though. So, after a quick little look here, it's actually- It's Len, Hendo. Len. That's what I said, dickhead. No, I said Len. You were saying Les. Uh, I think we can- uh, We've got audio proof there. Man, he is a dapper-looking fellow, isn't he? No wonder he married Kate Beckinsale. No wonder she married him. Mmm. Mmm. <laughs> <laughs> Calm down, Hendo. So, yeah, Len Wiseman's first choice was actually Scott Speedman. Do you know who Scott Speedman is? You've seen him in something very recent- was it uh, Vampire's Kiss? No, he plays Barry Baz Blackwell in Animal Kingdom. 
the TV show. You said you watched it all. I have watched it all recently. I just, I'm going to just check. He's him. in all the Underworld films as well, so that's why he was considering him. Actually, while you look up his face. Oh, him. There you go. <laughs> yeah, he's one of the main characters. He's great. Yeah. He was the first choice for Matt Farrell. Really? Yeah. Whereas Bruce Willis- Gee, wanted- he's a bit he's a bit older than Justin Long. Well, how about this? Bruce Willis wanted Ben Affleck for that role <sighs> to get that get back that chemistry from Ooh, Armageddon. Man, I'm so glad that didn't happen. Yeah, that would have been weird. Like, I, I like Ben Affleck, but he would not have fit this. Another dapper looking bloke. <laughs> and this film has an average of 7.1 over 365,000 ratings. Which is the same as Die Hard 2. Which is funny you say that because I'm pretty sure my rating for this is the same as the second one. Really? Yeah. Actually, no, I think this is worse than Die Hard 2. All right, so out of the four, this is your least favourite so far. So far, yeah. And the reason why is because this this is just not a Die Hard film. Die Hard 2 is a Die Hard film, and the problem with that is it's too much of a Die Hard film. This one... No, no. The problem with Die Hard 2 is not that it's too much Die Hard. Of, it's too much of the first one, just not as good. <sighs> There's a lot wrong with number two. That's the big problem with that. Okay, we've, we're done. We've, we've spoken about Die Hard 2. The problem with this one is it's it's... Hardly a diehard film. It's not violent in the slightest. It, there's no... There's no... Like, McLean is just not McLean anymore. He is this superhero in this film. He does shit in this film that you would just go, bullshit. Like, first diehard, he is the one that we relate to. He is the the everyman. This one here, he's fucking jumping off jet fighter jets and going through explosions and jumping out of cars and getting up and dusting himself off. It's It's gotten too ridiculous. Mm, I disagree. Really? I do, actually. Do you like this film? I really like this film. Wow! I, um... <laughs> yeah, I, I was... I got into this film. I'm not going to lie. I was pleasantly surprised when I was watching it. And we'll talk about it as we go. But I think it is a different John McClane. He's much older. And he's obviously finally been beaten down by life. And I could understand that. I could I could see that as a natural progression of his character. Now, I'm not going to defend that he is somewhat superhero-ish in this film. And this film's not five stars. It's not a perfect film. But I didn't have as big of an issue with it as you did. I appreciated the action elements to it more than any of the diehards since the first one. This one just felt super CG-ish. I was sitting there watching going, ugh, all right, ugh. Again, just eye-rolling the whole time. Because of how bad the graphics were? Yeah. Like in, say, number three, when the dam was filling up and that was like a cartoon? That was terrible, Or like number two, where he gets ejected from the the plane. You're you're talking like I I like Die Hard 2. Well, you're saying this is the worst of all of them. I'm just saying they all have, well, except for the first one, they all have elements of bad CG. Yeah, Die Hard with a Vengeance has that one scene where they're going through the dam and he flies out the top. Everything else there, that action is good and practical. Die Hard 2, I don't like that film. <laughs> <laughs> you this, like it more than this? I can't believe yeah. you like Die Hard 2 more than this. Because I, because it's so much more like a Die Hard film, the the action in it is much more brutal and violent. It's much more- Well, you just want more blood and you'd be satisfied. I like McLean in that film as well. Okay, wait, wait. I will. Okay, there is a very small difference between 2 and 4 here. I do not like either of them. There okay. is a half-star difference. I find I enjoyed two more. Maybe for nostalgic sake as well, because I've seen that so many times. This See, I, ha- I have no nostalgia yeah. for number two whatsoever. Okay, I do f- I do with that one. This one is for- this is probably the third time I've seen this, and the other two times I didn't like it, especially on this time when I was just watching it, especially coming after just watching one and two and three to watching this. This was a breath of fresh air. No, nah, I thought this was what I initially thought. Like, this is 
nothing like the other ones and I don't like it because of that. Okay. Fair enough. I can't wait to hear your thoughts on number five now. Like, that's going to be so... Because I, I hate, I hate the fifth one. Okay. And I'm, I'm really curious to hear what you have to say about that one. Good. I'm curious. Because I'm, you have seen it. I'm looking forward to watching it. Okay. Thank you, patrons. <laughs> <laughs> no, all right. Let's get into it. I feel like you've got a bit more to say about this film than me. Welcome, patrons, to our review of A Good Day to Die Hard. Is it a good day, Hendo? Because I don't know about you, but I watched A Good Day to Die Hard this morning, and it did not start off my day well. Certainly is a good day for this franchise to die hard. Ooh, well said. Jack! Dad? This is what you've been doing? 007, no playing field, New Jersey. Relax, you're safe now. This guy's bad news. Terrorism. Weapons grade uranium. Nukes. Someone's got to stop him. Got a boy. So, a good day to die hard. Released in 2013, starring Bruce Willis, Jai Courtney. That's it. That's it. Mary Elizabeth Weinstead. Did you see the version she was in? No. I did not either. Because I went on to the IMDb page for it afterwards, and I had a look around, and I saw that she was, like, third build for it. Yep. I was like, did I fall asleep? Like, it's probable <laughs> that I did, but <laughs> did I miss her? Like, was she on a phone call somewhere that I didn't remember? But apparently, she was in the original cut, but in the extended cut, she got taken out. Which means that we watched the extended cut of this. Yes, we did. <laughs> That's commitment. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, this film was directed by John Moore, who directed such classics as Max Payne, Flight of the Phoenix, the remake of The Omen. Behind Enemy Lines. Behind Enemy Lines is probably his, um, his opus. film. Yeah, his magnum, magnum opus. opus. His magnum opus, <laughs> Behind Enemy Lines. So, this film had a budget of $92 million. Wow. Grossed $67 million in America. Ouch. Was the 52nd highest for the year. But in worldwide, it made $304 million. Oh, so more than yeah, made back, it, back. It's the worldwide thing that gets it. It ended up 24th for the year as well. So nowhere near the other four in terms of uh, high-ranking diehard films with um, popularity and it's gross. More than I expected. Uh, worldwide, yeah. I kind of expected the gross in America. The Russians get movies like Americans do. Do you think the Russians would like this film? Well, it's set in Russia. If there was a film, oh, set- is that enough for them to like if it? If there was a film set in Melbourne, I'd probably be more inclined to watch it. I don't know if the Russians would like a film where the Russians are portrayed awful and every Russian is a bad guy, and Americans just come over and take take over Russia like we're we're the kings of the world. How dare you try your own thing? And none of the Russian bad guys are actually played by Russians. Yeah. <laughs> I did read they were like Ukrainian yeah. and all these different countries around the area. So I did see there were a couple of other people who were considered for the role of Jack McLean. JT. JT and especially- My boy. What about Aaron Paul? Liam Hemsworth? Hold on. Aaron Paul. What was he doing in 13? Breaking Bad. What season? <laughs> How big was it? <laughs> Pretty big, I think. At that point, it might have been like season four-ish. Yeah, okay. It would have yeah. been- Yeah. Would I mean, have been I would have preferred him. him. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, what else did we have? Paul Walker was in there. Uh, I think he would have been worse. Milo Ventimiglia. Who is that? The guy from Heroes? The main guy? The Asian guy. (laughs) (laughs) This is my son. (laughs) But he's Asian. (laughs) 
Um, I've never seen Heroes. Oh, okay. Um, geez, what else would you know him from then? Probably, I can't even think of other things he's been in. He's very well known for just the main guy in Heroes. Yeah, very well known if you've ever seen the show Heroes. He's in other movies. I know, I know he was. He played Rocky's son in Rocky Balboa, but you, I don't think you've seen the, the sixth one? No. No, okay. Uh, Paul Dano was also considered. Uh. What the hell would, kind of movie would that have been? <laughs> but ultimately, they went with... Jai Courtney, this fucking guy. He had not been really in much. He he was in a couple of seasons of Pack to the Rafters and yeah, an old Australian um, drama. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, he got this, and he, I mean, for him, this is the role of a bloody lifetime. Landing this, he went off to go in like all the Divergent movies and yeah. um, Suicide Squad, a glowing filmography, if I do say so myself. Terminator Genesis. You're you're making my point. <laughs> Is it like big? What is that is it, is it big movies? Yeah, but they're big, terrible movies. Yeah, but still. Yeah, he gets, how he gets is the he money. getting these roles? <laughs> I know. They're probably looking at it like, this feels like it's going to be a terrible movie. we got to get this guy in. Yeah, so this is the shortest and worst critically received movie of the whole series. I was so glad when I put it on and saw that it wasn't over two hours. Yeah, it was An good. hour 40, I was like, okay, I can get through this. Or so I thought. Did you get through it? No, I did. Okay, uh, actually, no, I didn't. Wow. I fell asleep. You said you watched it this morning. Hence why I watched it this morning. Okay. So I tried to watch it last night and I fell asleep and yeah, I finished it off this morning. And even this morning, after having a full night's rest, <laughs> put it on, start dozing. I was like, no, wake up. Uh, you're going to do it. <laughs> and as we're alluding to, this has an average of 5.3 over 184,000 ratings on IMDb. It's probably the... Actually, I'm certain it is the second lowest rated film we've done. Main show or, or Patreon. You obviously know what the first one is. Yep. Disaster movie. Yes. I guess we did all the Wes Andersons and none of them are lower. No, they all hit like a seven-ish. Yeah. No. All right, Dean, let's get into it. Oh, the Die Hard series, hey? What fun. Man, that that went downhill very quickly. It was, it was good. Was it? Yes. I don't think it was. I didn't mind it. Definitely enjoyed it more than you did. Yeah, well, there's no denying that after your sudden love for Die Hard 4, which I still can't fathom, but <laughs> we'll move on from there. Now, I think it's time to take a little trip down uh, memory lane for the podcast. And this time last year was Christmas, of course. And this is when we Genius. did our. Yes, makes sense. And this is when we did our episode on It's a Wonderful Life. It was also the time we did Pod v Pod 11 with Ghost of the Stratosphere. So I reckon we take a little journey back and reminisce on these episodes. But then when he gets back to this pharmacy, <laughs> keep calling it a pharmacy. Apothecarist. Apothecary? Apothecary. Apothecary. Yes. <laughs> this apothecary. Apothecary? No, I said it right. What was it? Apothecary. Apothecary. Yeah. This apothecary. <laughs> English Say it much? again. English much? Say it again. Apothecary. Apothecary. Yes, you said it right. Then this you changed it. This apothecary. Yes. This apothecary. <laughs> what is wrong with you? This apothecary. That's right. 1941. Was would that be? Um, what are you thinking? I'm thinking because uh, I know Christopher Reeves' dad was Superman. Was he? Yeah. Makes sense that he turns into Superman then. Well, it's genetic, yeah. obviously. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, why don't you stop annoying people? <laughs> That's good. <laughs> you get that obviously famous quote. I'll give you the moon, right? But then you can swallow it. I'll give you the moon. Then you can swallow it. What? <laughs> what is he talking about? <laughs> I was like, oh, this is a very beautiful. Wait, what? what, what? <laughs> swallow the moon. Yeah, to swallow it. <laughs> you dirty bastard. He's on the cusp of, of moving on to his dream, doing something, and it keeps pulling him back in. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. <laughs> Just when I thought I was out, 
They They pull pull me back back in. in. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and you even get Bert and Ernie, of course, he sees his house. (laughs) (laughs) It's still funny. Did you just picture it? Bert and Ernie. (laughs) Oh, hi. Hi, Bert. Is is that James Stewart? It is James Stewart. That's the only voice I do. (laughs) Oh, oh, hey, Bert. Oh, hey, Ernie. Oh, 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 hey, Bert and Ernie. Hi, I'm Bert. Hi, I'm Ernie. I don't know. Nah, that was terrible. Oh, gee, George, looks like your house is gone. That's not bad. That's not bad. I I like the notion of Akira, right. but I also like the notion of going like very very popular films. And I, I hate to say it, <laughs> that is a bold strategy. I also like the strategy of winning. <laughs> Maybe ice cream parlors were pharmacies. I don't know. There's lollies Maybe there as well. Maybe ice cream parlors were pharmacies. I don't know. He's making it was medicine for children, and he's making ice cream. It wasn't the year forty. Oh, wow, that's that's pretty poor. Come on. Do they have ice cream in 40? <laughs> oh, man. I don't think so. I, I, I just, mean, how would they keep it cold? What? Do they have fridges? And Do they have fridges in year 40? <laughs> that's probably the dumbest thing you've ever said on this podcast. Do they podcast. have fridges in 1940? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's oh. that's awesome. Hey listeners, we just want to take a quick second here to thank you for taking the time out of your day to come and listen to us banter on about movies and all things movie related. Yeah, it really does mean a lot to the both of us. We're always looking to improve our show and get our name out there. And there's a couple of ways you can help us. Yeah, one of the easiest ways is to just get the word of mouth out there. Let your family and friends know about the show and where they can find us, which is pretty much everywhere. Places like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, and of course, Podbean. We're very thankful to Podbean for taking on our podcast. Yeah, definitely. It's a great hosting site with a great app to go with it. Yeah, what I like about Podbean's app is you can actually comment on the episode you're listening to and it goes straight to us and we can reply back immediately. Amazing! And if you'd like to get a hold of us, you can do so over on Twitter. Hendo controls our main handle at The Movie Journey and I am at Dean's 250 Journey. You can also check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash The Movie Journey, our letterbox pages where we keep our film diaries up to date. I'm at letterboxd.com slash Dino underscore J88. Really rolls off the tongue. And you can find Hendo at letterboxd.com slash Hendo. Exactly. Another way to help us out is to leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes for us. Or if you're really loving the show and want more, why not check out our Patreon, where we post another weekly show, breaking down films not on the IMDb Top 250 list. Yeah, we've got over 70 episodes over there, including such classic film series like the Die Hard series, X-Men series, Mission Impossible series, as well as some notable film directors such as Wes Anderson, Edgar Wright, and even Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, that's right. There's also tons of benefits over there, early access to our main show, patron-only polls that we put out on the regular. Yeah, exactly. You can even shape the show the way you want to by telling us what films you would like us to break down. So what's coming up this week, mate? Well, not only are we behind in the main show, but we are a bit behind in the patrons, so this week coming is our Autopsy of Jane Doe episode. Yeah. Sorry, patrons. Uh, a week behind. We, you know, we don't like letting you guys down, so... Well, that's it. We just don't like it. I got got nothing for you, so... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so that'll be out this week, and we hope you enjoy that. Absolutely. So if that sounds like something you'd be interested in, head on over to patreon.com slash themoviejourney and check out the myriad of rewards and benefits we have to offer. All right, mate. It was at this point we'd done our Wes Anderson series, we'd done our Die Hard series, but one of the big things that we were interested in was patron requests. I feel like this was one of the big things we wanted to do with the patrons is get 
our patrons to tell us what they wanted to watch. Pick movies for us to break down. And we've gone through a bunch of those now. I think we're up to 15 or so now. Nice. Yeah. Of varying degrees of uh, enjoyment. Oh, absolutely. We've seen some really good films and we've seen some stinkers. Some doozies. And it's so hard to tell our patrons, hey, thanks for the pick, but it's <laughs> shit. <laughs> no, but early on we had a couple of patron requests. One was for The Red Pill, one was for Zodiac, and another was for Midnight Express. It was also at this point where we met our first goal over there, and we told the patrons, if we meet this first goal, we will we will punish ourselves for this. We are, we will do a little breakdown on the number one, the lowest movie rated on IMDb disaster movie. So check out these previews. Welcome, patrons, to our patron-requested review of The Red Pill. One in three American women and equal rights for women in the United States have been found guilty of raping a West Virginia teenager. Misogynist rantings would be at home in the far-reaching internet subculture widely described as the men's rights movement. Declaring the month of October to be bash a violent I decided to go where no feminist has gone before and meet these men's rights activists. So, The Red Pill, released in 2016, directed by Cassie J. Ah, Cassie. Yeah, usually we do the trivia here, but considering this is a documentary, most of the movie is trivia, isn't it? Yeah, you were telling me, um, just as I arrived earlier, you had a bit of trouble with doing notes for this film. Yeah, well, the thing is, because it is a documentary, as opposed to a movie, usually with our breakdowns in movies, I, I like to talk about the feelings of the characters or the way the movie is shot. Well, you don't and think the characters in this film had feelings? No, that's not what I'm saying. No. I'm saying because this is a documentary, most of the movie or the documentary is basically the same premise along the way here. So, like, how do I continue with my notes? Because when I do my notes, I'm like, okay, this is the scene about this. This is what I'm going to talk about. Yeah. But then, like, most of these scenes are almost the same. So, this is kind of- So, you don't, think, you don't think this flows and has, like, twists and turns along the way? Because I, I would say it definitely does. Well, we can talk about those, but th- that's- most of this movie is about the premise of, the, of feminists and, and men's rights activists and that. And this is kind of, I think this is the perfect movie to, to where we actually just talk about us, basically. Like our, our- Talk about us. Yeah. Like, talk about what we just feel about the film rather than going, oh, yeah, the, the editing on that was top notch and good cinematography there. And it's a little bit different. So- It is different. Yeah. So, first off, like, I guess- Thank you to Shane for doing something like this, for giving us a documentary instead of a, a movie. Um, it's what gonna, documentary is a movie? It's a different type of movie. You can't really tackle this documentary in a way you would die hard. <laughs> no, no, you can't. No. All right, for those that don't know what the movie The Red Pill is about, why don't you give us a plot summary there, Hendo? Okay, so The Red Pill chronicles filmmaker Cassie J's journey following the mysterious and polarizing men's rights movement. It also explores today's gender war and asks the question, what is the future of gender equality? So, very interesting choice of a film, of a documentary, I must For say. For a choice or just an interesting film? Both. I was definitely surprised that Shane picked this. Yeah, definitely. So, why don't we get into it, Dean? Welcome, patrons, to our patron-requested review of Zodiac. Dear Editor, this is the murderer of the two teenagers last Christmas at Lake Herman and the girl on the 4th of July. I want you to print this cipher on the front page of your paper. He wants his code in the afternoon edition. Ray Smith, don't you have a cartoon to finish? The Zodiac Killer has come to San Francisco. Another letter. School children make nice targets. He gave himself a name. 
So, Zodiac, released in 2007, starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Mark Ruffalo, Anthony Edwards, and Robert Downey Jr., directed by David Fincher. Who is Anthony Edwards? The other police detective with Mark Ruffalo. Ah, he's a nobody. That's his third billing in this film. Surely it'd be the actual killer. John Carroll Lynch. Ah, I knew it was John Carroll something. John Carroll Lynch, (laughs) is it? I tell you, every time I see that actor now in something, I just know him as the Zodiac Killer. Is he the Zodiac Killer, though? Ooh. Wait and see. (laughs) (laughs) So, David Fincher was always first choice to direct this film based off his work on... The Wonderful Seven. I mean, it fits It fits with his style very, very well. It does. And even though Jake Gyllenhaal was David Fincher's first choice for the role of Robert Graysmith, had Gyllenhaal turned the role down, it was going to go to Orlando Bloom. Mm. Who was... I mean, we look at it like that now, but back then when this film was made, he was, he was a someone. Yeah, the 2000s decade was... All Orlando Bloom. Well, he was in Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings, and Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, he like was they big. were massive. Yeah, Kingdom of Heaven was pretty successful as well, I believe. Sure, I've never seen it. No, I know the either. poster really well though. For some reason, speaking of casting decisions, David Fincher initially wanted Paul Avery to be played by Brad Pitt. I mean, you could see why. Yeah. You know, Seven, Fight Club. Of course, he wants him in the movie. Yeah, he wants Brad Pitt, but, but they got Robert Downey Jr., which I think is great, honestly. Just before. Iron His Man. stardom yep. went insane. That's right. So, this film had a budget of roughly $65 million. Only grossed 33 in America, but grossed 85 worldwide. Not really that big of a success. Not at all. I guess the- um, Well, it was a hard pitch to sell with it's, this- It's long. Yeah, this long, talky movie yeah, that, doesn't, that doesn't really conclude. That's a thing. Now, I saw this in the cinemas when it first came out, and I'll admit, I walked out disappointed. Yeah. I did see this- once a couple of years ago, and I, well, I did enjoy it. Yeah, it, it left a little bit. Like, I, it's not the movie I expected. Yeah, me neither. But because you're used to closure, and the fact that it is a true story about one of the most well known unsolved crimes from a serial killer, they, they had no choice. They're never yeah. going to be up. I think, honestly, watching it again, they gave us as much indication as they could without saying it was definitely John Carroll Lynch. John Carroll Lynch. What's his name? Oh, in the movie, yeah. Lee Arthur. Alan Arthur Lee. Lee so Arthur Three Alan? names. Yeah. Should have given it away. Robert Downey Jr. Jr.'s <laughs> <laughs> not his name. <laughs> Do you call him Robert Downey? I call him Bobby, personally. Bobby J. Bobby J. Bobby D. Bobby DJ. All right, moving on. <laughs> yeah. So, the shooting script was 200 pages long. Yeah, it's massive. I actually yeah. saw that David Fincher actually got his actors to speak quickly when they were performing to try and condense the runtime down a bit more. Like listening to a podcast in 1.5 speed. Mm, I wouldn't know. I've never done that. You should. I don't know how you do that with everything. I have a lot of podcasts to listen to. I do too, but I can't listen one and a half speed. You get used to it. Yeah, I don't want to get to used to it. To the point where when I listen to a podcast on regular speed, it sounds like they're slow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. So, a lot of detail went into this film. Like, a lot of detail to recreate the accuracies of the the investigation along the way. Yeah, I saw that Fincher actually chose not to cover the actual first double murder that's believed to be done by the Zodiac because there were no survivors from it. So, they didn't have enough facts to go off to recreate this and he didn't want to just make it up as he went along. Yeah, anything that he couldn't get as the truth, he didn't put in the film. Yeah, which is a great decision. Yeah. Because it means it feels so authentic. Even the murder victims' costumes were real. Like they to were, a yeah, yeah, based off the forensic evidence that was given to them by mm. the police. Mm. They went through all kinds of documents and, and files to just get as much information they could about this investigation. Yeah, and I think this film was so successful at what it was trying to do, the Zodiac case was actually reopened after this film was released. Well, what's the point? We know who the Zodiac killer was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> case closed. Yeah. All right, let's get into the breakdown. 
Welcome, patrons, to our patron-requested review of Midnight Express. He was a 20-year-old American boy, up against a system he didn't understand, spoken in a language he couldn't speak. He was beyond the help of his parents and the power of the United States government. So, Midnight Express, released in 1978, starring Brad Davis... Why are you asking that? Do you know who that is? No. I think this is all he's done. I did see a little bit of trivia on this guy. Apparently, he was uh, really into drugs and got extremely rowdy at Hollywood parties and basically had his career ended. Yeah, I saw that too. On the basis of that alone. No wonder I didn't know who he was. (laughs) Which is crazy because he's really good in this. Yeah, he puts in a solid performance. So, I mean, don't do drugs, kids. So, the only people I saw that I knew was John Hurt and Randy Quaid. Yeah. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah, well, I did say the director wanted to cast unknown actors to give it more of a realistic feel, which makes perfect sense. Yeah, understandable. You don't want to have this, you know, super serious prison movie and go, oh, that's, uh, like, even Papillon or Papian, which is what I've heard it is, actually. It's, uh, oh, Steve McQueen. Yeah, he's a big superstar. Like, yeah. it doesn't, it just doesn't fit. Yeah, nah, fair enough. And this was directed by Alan Parker. Who has done stuff. He What's directed he done? Mississippi Burning, which I have seen. I've seen that too. There you go. I think I saw that at a school. very long time ago. Yeah, at was school. Was it at school? Yes, yeah. it was at school. He also directed Evita, which I will never watch. I will not ever watch that either. <laughs> so this film ended up winning two Oscars. One best adapted screenplay written by Oliver Stone. I know. <laughs> I saw that. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, it's uh, a solid effort from him to write this. Great. Yeah. It also won Best Original Score. What do you think of the score? I thought it was good. I I actually, I think it's memorable. It's very uh, techno-y. Yeah, it's synth. Yeah, that's and right. And I think there. it was the first time that a, a synth score had actually won- The Oscar. The Oscar. Thank yeah. you. And it's funny because Oliver Stone and the composer, whose name eludes me mysteriously, <laughs> they teamed up again a few years later and did Scarface together. And Scarface has a very similar score to this. Yeah, it does too. Yeah, yeah it, it does. does. Yeah. Right, so this film had a budget of about one point eight million and ended up grossing thirty five million in America. Damn. Yeah, that's big. In America. Yeah. So obviously you gotta add in sales from around the world. I'm sure Turkey it was big in. You'd think. No, you wouldn't think at all, would you? <laughs> no, you wouldn't. I think it actually uh lost money in Turkey. <laughs> yeah, not a, this uh this movie, not a big uh, not a big fan from Turkey. Uh pretty much displays everyone in here who's Turkish as evil, basically. Evil strong, but yeah. Mm, They'd probably think it was evil. Well, they're Turkish. Yes. Just on this movie in Turkey, it actually- It's been said that this movie hurt tourism in Turkey for decades. But in all honesty, who's going to Turkey on a holiday? I hear it's a beautiful place. It looked really good in this this movie. Yeah, I mean, okay, fair enough, but- Hence the reason why this movie hurt it. The problem is, like, for me, and obviously I don't speak for everyone, but for me, I don't know a lot about Turkey at all. Now, if you're in the 70s and you see this and this is all you know about Turkey, then you're going to have a very negative connotation connected to the country. Yeah, you see something like you get arrested for what turns out to be a small amount of hash and you get put in for life. You're not getting changed to life. I don't think you're going to be going there anytime soon. No, I think that when they show the brutality of, you know, the authority figures in that country, 
the way that they did, it's not prompting anyone to make the journey, is it? No, it's not at all. Now, you mentioned the brutality of the prison guards in there. Is this what you're more equated to when you're watching a prison film? Oh, definitely. I felt this was um, a very accurate um, <laughs> portrayal of what prison should be like. <laughs> not some airy, fairy, bloody cool hand Luke Let's hang around outside and the hardest thing they have to do is... But Tara Road? I can't believe you think this is what real prisons are this like. This is what real prison is like, Endo. Oh, you've been there. You're a big hard-ass. Like, oh, man, I went to prison many, and many I got beaten up. Yeah. And they all show the brutality. <laughs> when I see a prison movie, I want to see the brutality. No, I, I think this might be true to life in terms of foreign prisons. I mean, I don't know anything about that, but this is technically based off a true story, is it not? It is, technically. Technically. Now, apparently, there's a... A lot of uh, misinterpretations of what actually happened with uh, Billy Hayes in his time in prison. Yeah, and actually, so I watched this movie yesterday. I spent a fair amount of my time while I was at work today thinking about it. And whether or not I would penalise a movie for not being... For being very loosely based on a true story. Or whether I would award it points for taking a source material and making it much better. And I think I'm going to err on the side of... Well done. Well done, Oliver Stone, for taking the bones of this story and making it a much more effective, entertaining, powerful film. I completely agree. I mean, in the, in the end, I don't care if it's a true story or not. Because my initial reaction, like, after I finished this film, I went, you know, straight onto Wikipedia. As you do with have, true story movies. Yeah, you do. Because, uh, we'll get to it later, but the, where the film stops, you sort of want to wanna know more. Yeah. Um, but I just think that- yeah, there's so much different. And to the point where Billy Hayes came out uh, much later, I don't mean that way, and said that he felt really, really bad for his role in how negative Turkey has been perceived by a lot of the world, basically. He came out, eventually apologised. I'm not sure. I think it was 2007, maybe. He ended up going back to Turkey for some peace thing and, yeah, basically formally apologised. So, if the movie hadn't said that it was a true story and it was just a story, how would you feel about that? I'd feel it would be less impactful, to be honest. Because I felt watching it, I was like, holy shit. This is real. This is real. But then when you find out it's not real- Yeah, it's see, this is what I mean. This is what I've been thinking about today. When you find out it's not real, is it like, oh, okay, maybe you lose that a bit. But having had that enjoyment watching it, not knowing that it wasn't- 100% accurate. I still got that enjoyment. I still left the movie with that enjoyment, and it gave me something to ponder later, but I think that, for the most part, it's a very entertaining film. Is this a lesson learnt that we shouldn't go digging a little deeper with these types of true story movies? Not at all. That's what we do. We That's dig. exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> and this film has an average of 7.6 over 67,000 ratings. So, let's get into it, Dean. Yes, let's. <sighs> Welcome, patrons, to our review of Disaster Movie. Normally, I'd like to say we have a treat for you people today, but yeah, it's a struggle to say that today. <laughs> when our world is threatened, when our lives are at risk, who can save us? The most incredible, most enchanting. Where am I? What is this enchanting place? Most disastrous. Hell no. I'm out of here. 
disaster movie. So, disaster movie released in 2008, starring a bunch of no names. Kim Kardashian. Carmen Electra, I guess, those two. Directed by some assholes. So, <laughs> who have made a shitload of these movies? Oh, have a look at this epic list of movies. Date movie, epic movie, Meet the Spartans, disaster movie, Vampires Suck, The Starving Games, Best uh-huh. Night Ever, <laughs> Super Fast. You've seen Super Fast, haven't you? Oh, is that them? Yeah. Yeah, I have seen that. And a new one coming out soon. What? Are they still making movies? Listen to this one. Star Worlds episode XXXIVE equals MC squared, The Force Awakens, The Last Jedi Who Went Rogue. Uh. <laughs> That's rough. Yeah. It's- How do these dickheads make these films? I mean, they must make money. Like, there's there's no two ways about well, it. Well, this film had a budget of $20 million, and it made $14 million in America, oh, okay. but it grossed worldwide $35 million. And in looking at it, it's actually one of their lower grossed films. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what do you say to that? These guys are making millions and millions of dollars for these films. Yeah, it's- uh, I, It just shows the level- that people will go to to see Who's like, consistently going out and paying for this stuff? I have no idea. Is it like, must be like um, the lower, 12 year olds. The lower quality <laughs> denominator of people who would just be like, yeah, this looks funny. They'll see a trailer for some dumb shit. Oh, I'll go see that. <laughs> Actually, this movie was not screened in advance for critics. I mean, yeah, obviously. <laughs> I wonder why. But that's, yeah, there are a lot of bad movies that decide not to let critics see it yeah. first. But this film actually was the first to receive an F on cinema score. Wow, really? I mean- I know it's terrible, but is it, like, the first film that was that bad? Yeah, I wonder what date movie and all that yeah, got. Like- a D minus, maybe. Maybe yeah. there was something to them. I don't know. I haven't seen any of them. But this film does have an average rating of 1.9, <laughs> over 81,000 ratings, currently sitting, obviously, at the number one spot on the IMDb bottom 100. In fact, it hit number one for the first four months after it was released, yep. but then it was quickly dethroned by a 2000 film called Sweetie Pie, uh, starring Paris, Paris Hilton. Hilton. Of course. But it did return back to number one when they uh, deleted it off the database. <laughs> really? They deleted the movie off the database? Yeah, it disappeared from the from the database. I don't know what happened there, but they got rid of it. Jesus. Maybe it was that bad. It doesn't even, it doesn't even classify as a movie. Maybe it was a porno. Well, that wouldn't have been the boys one ever, would it? <laughs> All right, let's just let's, let's get into this. Let's let's get this over with, basically. Let's do it. All right, mate. I want to introduce a new segment. Got a new name for the podcast. New new fresh name. Here's a new little fresh segment. This is mainly for me. You, oh this, my you're, god, you're a listener. Because I'm a listener. You are. What, what is you might this? you might be able to chime in. Chime, chime oh really? In. You, you think might be so? Able to chime in? Maybe On my podcast. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I know because I know you're against it, but I don't care. What is it? That's the trailer right there. That's right. I've got seven trailers I watched this week. I want to rank them from oh, my most anticipated. Hendo, hendo, hendo. Starting with number seven, Black no, Widow. No Black wonder Widow. you didn't ask me. Exactly. I'm against this wholeheartedly. Black Widow. Just not not a not a fan of this trailer that I saw. If you why are you doing this? I don't watch trailers. I don't give a shit. That's your problem. Number six, Free Guy, the new Ryan Reynolds film coming out with Taika Waititi, where he's basically playing a. Uh, an extra character in a game that he uh, manages to break free from and have a bit of fun with it. Looks interesting. Might be funny. Uh, could be awful, though. Could be awful. The next one, the new Ghostbusters teaser, Afterlife, it's called. Uh, what I like about this is that it does exactly what a teaser should do and give almost nothing away. Give little snippets, bits and pieces. But aside from that, I'm not a big Ghostbusters guy, so it didn't really wow me. My fourth, Top Gun Maverick. Tom Cruise, back. He's uh, it's looking good. He's clearly been... Flying these planes himself with some of the shots they're showing, he's it's him in the in the pilot seat. You give me an eye, you give me an eye like he would. Is that actually him in the plane? Do you really think Tom Cruise is not doing his own stunts in Top Gun? Sorry, I wasn't listening. What'd you say? <laughs> 
You want to do the segment? I'm just going to rag on it the whole time. No, because I've got a film that I've got a film trailer you've seen, so you can you can pop in there. Here we go. Not this one. Wonder Woman eighty four. Nah, not watching that. No, I know you're not going to watch it, but I don't actually. I'll get this. I don't understand why you don't want to watch films because your memory your memory is poor. Your memory is so poor. I'd imagine you would watch it and forget it immediately. You're so big on, oh, I don't want to watch it, I don't want to do sport by anything. You forget things in a heartbeat. Yes, I do. Look at you. You're so sour right now. Yeah, the Wonder Woman 84. I mean, I'm a sucker for 80s songs, soundtracks, so that was really good. Uh, A couple of casting choices I was a bit questionable on. Seems like it's going to be okay. We'll see what happens. And my number two, the Mulan trailer. Did you see that one in the cinema? I did. Yeah. Looks really good. does look really good. I'm obviously spoiled on what's going to happen, but... uh, the film does look good. Completely spoiled. You know uh, exactly what's going to happen in this film, don't I you? I think I heard it's like the most expensive film ever made. For Disney or just for every, anything in general? I feel like it was anything in general. It's like $300 million budget or something stupid. Wow. Do you think it shows in the trailer? I think it looks pretty good. Hey, stop trying to get me to talk about trailers. <laughs> Why? You've seen this. Why can't we talk about this? Mm. My number one anticipated, which could very well be my number one anticipated film for the next year. Who knows? It's the new James Bond film, No Time to Die. It looks really good. Rami Malek, the villain, looks really good. Are you a Rami Malek fan? He's pretty good at Mr. Robot. Have you watched Mr. Robot? Yes, I have watched Mr. Robot. How much Mr. Robot have you watched? First season. It's a good season. It is a good season. Then I stopped. And then you told me, no, second season. Nah, don't worry about that one. Yeah, it really dropped off for me, Mr. Robot. Apparently, like, the fourth season's really good and all that, but... It's so just complicated. Like, even I used to watch it and then listen to, like, a breakdown podcast on it, which would go for almost an hour. Even that, doing that every week, I would still be pretty lost. Very uh, in-depth show. Fair enough. But Daniel Craig's last outing is Bond. Uh, Is it? it? For sure? Yeah. It's uh, it's, uh, it's basically coming... It's basically moving straight on from Spectre. So you've got a lot of stuff from Spectre happening, which means I'm going to have to go rewatch that prior. Did I hear that the next James Bond is going to be a female? No. What you've heard is that the moniker of 007 is a female because Bond is retired and someone else takes the 007. James Bond is Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig is James Bond. Okay, the next next James Bond film, which won't be a James Bond film, will be a 007 film. No, there'll still be a James Bond film coming up. Just not Daniel Craig. Yeah, there'll be a new actor who takes James Bond. People are getting up in arms because they're saying, oh, the new James Bond's a woman. No. The new spy who has the code name 007 is a female. But pe- okay. yeah, people see headlines and like, oh, outrage. Like, how about you watch the trailer? How about you read the damn article and you'll find out? And they definitely show that in the trailer. You see the female 007. I don't know about you, but I just I tend to read the headlines. Uh, are you, are you a clickbaity kind of person? Am I a clickbait? No, because that would mean I'm looking for the whole it. article. <laughs> I am I'm not like, a clickbait headline, person. Comment immediately. <laughs> what is this he- headline outrage? <laughs> <laughs> All right, mate, we've got two more patron previews to go. And it's been our two Q and A episodes. Yeah, nice. Uh, that, that was that was something different. Having uh, our patrons present a whole bunch of questions to us for you know just random little things they want to know, mainly film related, obviously. Yeah, there was but, a couple uh, of personal ones. We had we've shared a couple of funny stories on there, but definitely a lot of our uh, film related questions. So check out a couple of these previews. Welcome, patrons, to our special Q and A episode. So basically what we're doing this week is we had our top tier patrons get onto Patreon and ask us a whole bunch of questions, anything they wanted to. They're basically centered around movies, so they're not very uh, personal, I guess, which is fine. We, we, you know, we talk about movies a lot. I mean, there's always options to get personal in these questions. Well, why don't we find out if we get into any personal ones? <laughs> i got a couple of things coming up. Oh, God. So we've got 42 questions to get through here. We'll just go through question one all the way to the end and we'll... 
give you our answers. This is going to be fun. This is an interesting one. It's different. Yeah. We haven't done anything like this before, so we're a bit excited. All right. So let's go with question one here. If you could have a superpower, what would it be and why? Well, for me personally, I would really want the ability to shapeshift, a la like Mystique from X-Men. Into anyone? Into anyone. Okay. Now, it'd be even better if I could include animals in this, but let's put that aside. Okay. Let's not get into like animals territory, but- just being able to shapeshift into other people, I think there's so many advantages. You could mess with people, yeah. which would be the main thing. <laughs> um, you could, yeah, you could obviously commit a fair number of crimes as well through- uh, Bit bizarre, that's the first thing you go to. Oh, yeah, we can do some mischief here. Crimes, let's let's get going on that. Oh, well, what's yours then? Uh, mine is mind control. I'd love to be- oh, <laughs> That's even worse than mine. <laughs> I didn't say yours you was bad. Sicko. I said it's interesting. <laughs> No, to have the ability to control people, make them do what you want them to do. You I, could just try being nice to them, Hendo. No, 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 no. I would, I'll still be an asshole, and then I would mind control them to just accept that. Oh. Yeah. All right, question number two. Rank the Batman actors. Go, Hendo. Okay, now I only went with the five actors from the main films. I've not seen any of the Adam West kind of things, and I don't really know the names of the voice actors. from like- Kevin Conroy, how dare you? Well, I've seen, I've seen a couple of them, actually, but- I didn't put him in this list. I didn't either, but if I had, he would be number one. He's the perfect Batman. Fair enough. Well, I've gone with the worst was Clooney. I I had Clooney as well. Yep. Uh, I had Val Kilmer next. Yep, me me too. (laughs) Although, I I like Val Kilmer. I actually think Val Kilmer onwards is good. I mean, this yeah, having him fourth doesn't mean he's bad. It's just- yeah, It means Clooney's bad at five. (laughs) Yeah. I still remember his reaction to when he meets Mr. Freeze- all the others were like, I'm Batman. He's like, hi, Freeze. I'm Batman. I'm Batman. I was like, surely you knew that. <laughs> uh, my number three is Affleck. Yeah, me too. Oh, wow. I thought you would have had him um, one or two. No, I considered putting him at the number two spot, but I think had Justice League not come out, no, I don't I think he was that great Justice in Justice League. League but had it, had it only been Batman versus Superman, I may have had him at number two, but Justice League did hurt Affleck for me. Affleck is probably the best thing from BVS for me. Yeah, no, I'd agree. That's a very short list of good things from BVS. Anyway, my number two is Michael Keaton. Yeah, me too. Oh, wow, look, look at this. <laughs> Michael Keaton, yeah. yeah. He's, he's the one I, um, you know, I would have seen first. Shit, maybe not. Nah, Clooney, I saw Batman and Robin first. First. Not a good start to the Batman actors. Although <laughs> you were probably quite young at the time. It may have been a good little entry point. I, I Say what you will. As a kid, I really, I mean, I still do like them, but I was really into Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. Batman and Robin, I saw at the cinema, obviously. For- I saw Forever at the cinema as well. Oh, I didn't see that. I saw Batman and Robin with the like the school. I, I think it was in grade six maybe at the time, and we had like a school excursion to go see Batman and Robin. So that was fun. Mm. Hmm. Anyway, number one, Christian Bale. Christian Bale. Of course. I mean, Batman Begins and The Dark Knight for me are just perfect, fantastic films. You have all three as five stars, do you? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah I don't. I have Dark Knight Rises a bit lower, and you know we've had our arguments between us about why and why not. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Christian Bale. Yeah, he he's a fantastic Batman in he, all three. He really is. Like he did cop a lot of flack for the Batman voice. But, I didn't mind that. I don't mind I tried, the Batman actually, voice. Actually, when I was when I was um doing this, I was trying to separate him from the quality of the films. Yeah, and I still think he's the best. Yeah, no, I agree. Welcome, patrons, to our Q&A episode. All right, we did put it out there a little while ago for all you patrons to give us give us a bunch of questions that you wanted us to answer. Really get into the psyche of the IMDb Journey podcast. Well, 
That's quite the statement there, Hendo, getting into the old psyche of you and I. But we'll see where we end up. Yeah, that's right. We've got majority movie questions, but there are some personal ones in there too, which I don't mind. Yeah, I don't care. <laughs> you got nothing to hide. I mean, everyone's heard us talk for many hours by now, so I've got no issues. Fair enough. So we got over 50 questions here. Fantastic showing from you guys. Really appreciate that. Yes, we really do appreciate it. We'll try and get to all of them, but let's just get into it, shall we, Dean? Let's do it. All right, our first batch of questions here comes from Ben Mulverhill. He asked... Which film on the top 250 is the most overrated? Now, for me, my mind did go to a film like Forrest Gump. Yeah. But I think a lot of people complain about Forrest Gump now. I'm going to go with a film that I'm not sure I've heard of many people complain about, probably because not obviously not nearly as many people have seen it, but a film that I watched, which I fucking hated, it was Das Boot. You son of a bitch. I don't understand how you can rate this highly. It's so good. It's crazy. I love it. Mine is a film from a director we've done an episode on. I just, I do not, I do not get the love for this film. It is Igmar Bergman's of course. Persona. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, fair enough. See, there are movies like that where, you know, the same with Seven Seal, where it was released a long time ago. You know, people enjoy the artistic aspects to it. There's probably a lot of, uh, you know, very intellectual stuff to get into. But I just thought... I was so fucking bored in Das Boot. I watched the god-awful four-hour version, I think. It was really a struggle. At least there's some good moments of tension and you don't know what's going to happen there, in that film. Is there, though, there is. There is, absolutely. There is. There's a lot of good stuff in that no, film. There's not. All right, next question, mate. If you had to decide the content of the next three Star Wars films after Episode Nine, what characters, stories, planets, sequels, prequels, etc., would be involved? Ben, I, I honestly do not have an answer for this. I don't know much about Star Wars at all. I couldn't. I don't even know where to begin with that. I wouldn't know what to do. Like, I don't care. I will. I will just go watch it. Sorry, mate. I, I don't have an answer. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I, I'm not a huge, uh, you know further literature into the Star Wars stuff either. But I'll, I want to go completely away from the Skywalker story. Let's go... I want to go way, way back. I want to go, like, when the Sith were very strong, when there were heaps of Jedis, and not, like, episode one, but I did I did a little bit of research. I kind of like the look of uh, Darth Revan, who was a Jedi who turned evil. Quite a... He, he looks like a, a uh, layered character, so... Yeah, that's what I would go with. Do you say he looks like a Leia character? Layered. We have one of those already. Oh, Princess Leia. Yes. Well, Glad you got that one. Brilliant. Thank you. All right, next question, mate. You can only watch one actor's filmography for the rest of time. Who are you choosing? I had a couple options here. Uh, I considered Leo, but I just don't think he has enough films compared to who I ended up with, which is De Niro. De Niro, okay. De Niro's got 120 credits. And I just think with De Niro, you get such a wide variety of films from good to not as good. Comedies, dramas, thrillers, and they're all enjoyable. And I think because he's been acting for so many decades, you also get a bit of a story of of film and where film has gone. So I think if I had to only watch one, I'd go De Niro. What about you, Hendo? There was one that immediately popped to mind when I read this question. It's Samuel L. Jackson. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you get your Pulp Fiction, you get a bunch of other Tarantino films, you get a ton of MCU films in there, you got a bunch of Star Wars films as well. Look, what else we got there? Jurassic Park, you got Goodfellas, a couple of uh, animation films, Incredibles 1 and 2. 
I mean, yeah, see, he's got range too. Yeah, tons of great films that I could easily watch over and over again. Nice, good pick. All right, next set of questions here from Joe Banyard. When you record your breakdowns, do you scrub through the film on a screen or do you have to do it all from memory? So it's actually neither in a way. We we don't watch the film or scrub through it as we're recording our episodes. We watch it separately. And oh, we, is that yeah, what he meant by that? Yeah. I was wondering what he meant by that. Yeah, we jot down our notes about the film as like prior to recording. We've watched the film separately. We write down what's happened. What are we going to talk about in this part of the film? Our notes. So and and essentially we do play it from memory there. But we do have the, the basically the whole film in note form. Yeah, exactly right. We yeah you know, for me I used to take minimum double the runtime of the film to do notes for really? yeah minimum. Yeah, Ben Hur was a nightmare. <laughs> um, which uh, yeah does affect you know how you watch a film when you're doing that many notes. I have somewhat reduced it of late. I'm trying to not pause the film as often Mm -hmm. because it's like, honestly, you'd watch a bit, pause, write a heap of notes, and that's fine, but I'm just trying to make sure that I get the main points across and try to continue the flow of the film. Pretty much the same for me. Like Most of my notes is just the consistency of the movie itself where I put in some key points that I want to address, but most of it now is just free-flow banter between you and I. Yeah, it's definitely changed from- Way back in the day, I used to yeah write paragraphs and paragraphs of what exactly I wanted I used to say. To handwrite paragraphs. You did. I remember you coming with like ten pages yeah. written down. Like, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> no, my, my notes can get super long on yeah. some films. Uh, how times have changed. Yeah. Oh no, I, I would disagree <laughs> with that. I, I write I write very very long notes still. Um, I've just become better at it and quicker at it. Well, that's what happens when we do. What over a hundred episodes now total, if you're counting main show and patron. Yeah, easy. And that'll do it for the patron previews. So, what's next? Obviously, next week is our Prisoners episode. Finally, we'll be doing our top five breakout directors of the decade. And then after that, Dean, you get to choose your film, finally. It's been a while. You've been hanging on to this for a couple of months. What was the last film you picked? I think it was Infernal Affairs. Wow, that's ages. What was your last one? Was it The Pianist? Jesus. Yeah. It's been a while since we've had our own choice. Well, I mean, we did choose the horror films, but we were very, very, very limited there. Yeah, there were only like <laughs> four four <laughs> options. <laughs> yeah, so thanks everyone for checking out this week's episode. Yep, and we'll see you next week for Prisoners. Bye. Bye.